Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. Xfinity from Comcast is proud to sponsor this conversation from Boston Public Radio. More at Xfinity.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, President Biden speaks on the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, saying Trump spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. We'll hear reflections on American extremism from NBC political director Chuck Todd, later in the show from Assistant House Speaker Catherine Clark. And in between, we'll get your thoughts on the state of our democracy one year after the insurrection. Then it's time for Law and Order with Andrew Cabral, who give us her take on the guilty verdict against Elizabeth Holmes, the supposed female incarnation of Silicon Valley superstar Steve Jobs. She said she was going to revolutionize medicine with a new technology, unfortunately. She lied. All that and more ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GPH. And you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there. Boy, a very un-Joe uh, Biden-like morning for Joe Biden, I'll tell you. No, he went after President Trump more than I've ever seen him Me do too. it before. Yeah. Joining us online on this uh, very unsettling anniversary is Chuck Todd. Chuck's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston. That's Channel 10 on most providers here. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC, the political director for NBC News. Uh, Happy New Year, Chuck. It's good to speak to you. Uh, happy New Year. I guess we'll still say Happy New Year. I know. <laughs> Felt weird even saying it. I know. you're. Totally... It's so weird. I, I, I did the math the other day. It's March 792, 2020. <laughs> uh, if you're, if you're, if <laughs> sometimes it feels like we, we, we are in the same time loop. We, we really are living Groundhog Day. Anyway. Yeah, we, we are living Groundhog Day. But, but what did you think of what the president um, just said uh, earlier this morning. What did you think of his speech? I, look, it's the single most important speech and the best speech he's given as president, period. Yeah. Um, it's, it, was, it was something that needed to be done. Um, I was talking with some folks at the White House and simply said, why didn't you do it sooner? And uh, this person said to me, you know, sometimes there's the right place and the right time to do it, and you can't just do it on a Thursday in the East Room, um, which I, on one hand I agree with, uh, but he did you know, by, there's a lot of us were wringing our hands. He spent a whole year sort of staying above it. Yeah. And I, now you could make, if you're in their shoes, you make the calculation. The whole point was not to engage him. The whole point was to see if he would go away. And I think, by the way, the single biggest miscalculation all of us made is the idea that not giving these people oxygen exactly. will make this movement die out. That's turned out not to be true. That doesn't mean we weren't right to hope that that would have been the case. But it's turned out not to be true. We in the mainstream media try to pretend that these denialists are, are you know, fringy people and not representing 40 percent of America. Right. I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to, you know, confront this a little bit more in, in, a, in a mainstream context. I think the president today, I mean, I, like I said, it, it is he he did it bullet point by bullet point. Right. It wasn't a vagary, the speech. I think he needed to do what he did, debunk it. He needed to do it 
for history's sake, but he also needed to, to do it to sort of frame this correctly. Um, and I'll say this, it, it, it is a, it, to me, it's an interesting little MRI. If you think that speech was partisan, then you believe the big lie. If, if, if you do not think that speech is partisan, then you obviously believe in the democracy. There's no, and I, I've seen some people claim, I can't believe the president's politicizing. Again, if, you're, if you think that's the case, then, then you believe President Trump's lie. Yep. Um, so, look, it was an important speech, uh, and I think he met the moment, and it was an important moment he had to meet. I agree with all that. I agree that it was important for history. It was important for the moment. It was important for him to say the words. But it isn't like any of that 40 percent you described a minute ago were going to say, oh, my God, Donald Trump, who I believed in, hasn't spread a web of lies. That's true. So it seems to me it was as much for his own base to show he's got a pulse on these issues as almost anything else, which I think does matter. Do you not agree with that? Oh, I I, I think you're not wrong. I, I agree that this was it's, – it's more important for, you know, people like my mother who's been frustrated that he doesn't – you know, how come he doesn't fight back more, you know? Mm-hmm. I get that from her all the time, you know? And 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 I'm like, he's going to pick – you know, he's a guy who's always going to pick a spot. He's an institutionalist. You know, he, he will let something go longer than, than, than others will um, because that's just his nature. That's the nature of somebody who served in the Senate as long as he did. Um but uh, I agree. He had to show the fight. He showed a spine. He showed a, uh, a, you know, again, he used the bully pulpit in every sense of the word. Um, and, 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 he, and, he, and he stood up to him. I, I love the little subtlety, subtle distinction he made in referring to the former president and defeated former president, but never uttering the T word. Yeah, indeed. Well, That's yeah, true. I also loved, and I don't know if this matters, but... You know, a lot of us can relate to people with with big egos and they can't admit that they've made a mistake and they can't admit that they've lost. And he went that route, too, talking about that that's what this is all really about, that the president's ego is bruised and he can't admit that he's a loser. Um, I don't know if that makes any difference to the people that are Trump people. But, you know, there's a lot of macho. Made a difference macho... to Chuck's mother, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? There's a no, lot of I, macho yeah. posturing by him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. But some of that is almost some of that, I think, was intentional to to sort of get under Trump's skin. Yeah. Trump will will overreact. I mean, his his written statements, very unimpressive um, for for him. No, no, nothing really even quotable. He sort of he sort of he's like the old guy muttering to himself, realizing that that today Biden's going to get the best of him, you know. But but, you know, he's you know, my guess is you know, Trump will finally respond to this in like a week, you know, it's some, it's some, I think he's got an Arizona yeah. rally or something like that. But I do think it shows you, you know, how it's interesting. He certainly is afraid. I think the fact that Trump backed down from speaking publicly today shows you that he is afraid to test how strong his leadership is mm-hmm. on the party, which I think is an interesting tell. He's afraid of finding out that maybe uh, if he pushed it too far, elected leaders should walk from him. He doesn't want to know if that, that would happen. So, Chuck Todd, can we go from a fiery speech to a, let's be kind, a less fiery speech 24 hours earlier? Uh, okay. One would argue that Merrick Garland had to speak to almost the exact same constituency that Joe Biden did. What was your reaction to his, 
we'll go after everybody who's responsible kind of thing. Look, I think that people forget Merrick Garland was a circuit court judge for most of his life. He was preparing to be this. If you want a prosecutor, don't hire a judge. (laughs) All right. I don't know how else to put it. Merrick Garland's a judge. He's a well-respected judge, but a judge is even tempered. A judge, 20 years of this, I, I think that you need a bulldog here, right? If I know what people are looking for, and I also believe you've got to walk a line here, all right? In a democracy, we don't prosecute our opponents. So I understand that line you want to get at, right, which is you want to hold these folks accountable, but you don't want to look like we're some third world, you know what I mean, in, in that, that sense. So that I do think that's what's um, – and I, frankly, I think Garland is striking the tone that Biden wants him to strike for what it's worth. But I will just remind people he's a judge. He has been a judge. He's not a prosecutor. He's technically attorney general now, but the man's still temperamentally a judge. Well, and and let's stay with him for just one second. You know, uh, people like Larry Tribe here have said that at minimum there should be an, an investigation. Maybe one is going on. My assessment is if there was a grand jury that was looking into higher-ups as high as the former president – or even an investigation within the Department of Justice uh, directed at Trump, that the likes of Chuck Todd would at least know that it was going on. And I'm assuming you don't know that it's going on, which leads me to conclude that yesterday is more rhetoric than reality. He's gone after the rank and file and not the, not the bosses. And that's, I think, that, I think that's a fair argument, because that's exactly what seems to be happening. I mean, where's... You know, Steve Bannon is about the one, you know, about the only person they've decided to engage in. Now, maybe that's worthy, but only due to his inability to respond to Congress. Exactly. I mean, arguably, arguably, there's a criminal referral now for them to start an investigation and open a grand jury. I mean, you know, Peter Navarro, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, how many people use government? How about, you know, it is illegal to use to use the government to basically overturn the government. So there's a lot of ways that, that Mark Meadows may have, you know, uh, 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 done this. So, but I'll tell you, I, I just everybody in this town knows Garland. It, he was never going to be the one to prosecute Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon, let alone Donald Trump. It's just not. If you're expecting that, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Talking so, to Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. So, in other words, um, we have to rely on on the, the district attorneys in New York. The voters. <laughs> In state to do it? No, the voters. <laughs> the voters, you may have okay. To rely on the voters. Okay. All right. At the end of the day, you may have to rely on the voters because hey, look at the New York thing. You think that's going to get resolved in, in, in months or years? Yeah. Right? You know, it, it is the corporate lawyers, all of this, bottomless pit of money. You know, it's, 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 uh, I'm not saying that they're not going to make their life miserable with, with the stuff, but it's going to be, a, I, I think. If that's what you're waiting for, you know, I, I would say is that should be that's the backup. That should be your backup plan. Yeah, you're, but uh, can I? I don't want to get lost so in the legal. Front, your front of the book plan is 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 go in at the ballot box. I, but but before that, I don't want to get lost in the legal weeds here, and I don't know enough about the new Manhattan DA to know if how far he's going to take anything there about financial crimes, which I think are far less significant than uh, the crimes that 
at least I believe, that should be investigated on the federal level. How about Georgia? I mean, can anybody listen to that tape who's in the prosecutorial business and not say there was an attempt by the president of the United States to convince a public official to overturn an election? No. And, I, you know, Georgia to me is where he showed the most criminal – that there's the most criminal exposure is, is what he said in that call, what he attempted to do, the firing of the U.S. attorney, mm-hmm. okay, in order to find a new one that would do this. I mean, you know, what he attempted to do in justice, he did in Georgia. I, look, you're not wrong. I, I just think that right now that's not being treated as a federal crime. I believe it's being investigated as a, as a, as a yeah. Fulton County uh, 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 crime. Um, but, uh, you know, I've talked to plenty of legal folks who think that is the single biggest exposure Trump has, more so than New York City and more so than, than anything happening in January 6th coming. So let's move on to something else. You know, now that it's a year from January 6th, we're seeing all sorts of uh, writing and talking about democracy teetering on the brink. Jimmy Carter had a big piece in the New York Times when he was basically saying that we are, you know, on the brink of falling into an abyss. Um, Do you think that there's a sense of that? Because the more you read, the more you think, well, if if Trump were to be reelected or if uh, in in 2024, and if mm-hmm. these Republicans do control wh- whose votes counts in 2022, which it seems more and more likely, you know, we could be following in the heels of of you know Poland for goodness sakes. I mean, going right. Greatest, I'll tell you a fear that we don't talk about enough. What? Because I think there's a lot of people that are in denial about this. What if Trump wins a fair and square election in 24, but the left <laughs> doesn't believe it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I mean, know. I, 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 it's a, it's, I, I, that worries me. You see where I'm going here? That yes. Worries me. I mean, this is what the right has done, right, is that they have introduced uncertainty about whether you should believe the results of the election, right? And you're going to have people on the left that are, that are unsure if, 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 you, if, 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 if Trump wins. So, Chuck Todd, uh, every but hold on for one sorry. second. Legitimately, you know, wins legitimately. You know, the, the things I worry about really is if, if Trump wins legitimately or illegitimately, is is uh, his authoritarian tendencies? Does he crack down on dissent? As as somebody wrote in the Atlantic, does uh, do when people do take to the streets? If they do take to the streets to protest, if we have, you know, all those women out again like we had before, or a mass demonstration uh, by the left, does he does he have the uh, uh, unmarked federal agents coming in and swooping people down? We don't know who they are, where they're taking them. I mean, it's the it's the he's very obviously influenced by by those authoritarian uh, rulers. He loves Vladimir Putin. I mean, I think it's really frightening to consider how quickly the whole yeah. barrel of wax could melt. You know, and this time, you know, there aren't, you know, there were a whole bunch of Republicans who at least quietly realized he was unfit and unstable to be president. Correct. And so they, they you know, Reince Priebus got him, warmed his way in there. And I mean that, in a, you know, in hindsight, he did, he tried to put up some guardrails, right? John Kelly tried to put up guardrails in their own way. Right. I mean, you know, it's sort of I'm moving the Overton window here. OK, I'm not praising that. But, uh, you know, they realized, oh, my God, the the leader is crackers. Right. We've got to you know, you got to take things away. You've got to not let him know. Well, he knows that this time. Right. He knows these people did this to him. So he'll have sick of it. Jim Jordan will be the chief of staff. 
right? Some ridiculous entity like that. Madison Cawthorn will be the press secretary. I mean, can you imagine this clown show, right? Like, you know, um, you know, Attorney General Matt Gates, things like that. Now, that said, you know, I, I guess this is another audience for Biden's speech today. And I, I, and I can tell you, only one Republican accepted our invitation today to come on air. They're cowards. These elected Republicans have been cowards because they know what Trump is doing is wrong, and they don't want to say it because they want to keep their own they, they want to keep their own office. And I do think that was also Biden's audience, because ultimately, the only way this democracy survives is if these elected Republicans, enough of them, do the right thing. And there's going to be fewer of them there in 24. We know that of the do the right thing caucus. We got to hope there's enough. You know, we only have a minute left, and I was going to end with uh, give us a hopeful note, but forget the hopeful note. Why has <laughs> Matt Gates not been indicted? That's a great question. Um, it, it, it is, it is uh, that that is that is an, uh, a head scratcher. He obviously is somebody that turned on him. It's you know, I, at the end of the day, if it's taken this long, long to issue an indictment, it tells you they may not have a prosecutable case. Or they fear that they don't have it. You know, I think that's one of those cases. If they could, they would. You know, it's Remember, a, it, Barr opened that investigation. Oh, indeed. Barr's Justice Department that opened that investigation. Yeah, okay. It's a great irony. Rachel Rollins is criticized by all the Republicans because she doesn't want to you know, send to GL people who stole 15 bucks worth of gum at, at CVS. <laughs> but we can't seem to indict any of these people with these huge, terrible uh, allegations against them. Chuck Todd, thank you so much. Good to speak to you, Chuck. All right, guys. Be well. Nice <laughs> you too. Bye, guys. Talk to you soon. Good luck, Chuck. In 2022, Chuck Todd joins us every week. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston, Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Coming up, we are getting opening the lines to get your reactions on the anniversary of January 6th, as well as what President Biden had to say just a little while ago. You're listening to 89.7 GPH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mardrigan, Jim Brown. If you missed his speech this morning, President Biden was blunt in his assessment of former President Trump's handling of the Capitol riots exactly a year ago today. Here's some of Biden's speech. So at this moment, we must decide what kind of nation are we going to be? Are we going to be a nation that accepts political violence as a norm? Are we going to be a nation where we allow partisan election officials to overturn the legally expressed will of the people? Are we going to be a nation that lives not by the light of the truth, but in the shadow of lies? We cannot allow ourselves to be that kind of nation. The way forward is to recognize the truth and to live by it. And to live by. You just heard from Chuck Todd. Well, now we want to hear from you. One year out from the insurrection, are you worried about America's growing acceptance of political extremism? Are you identifying with the likes of former President Jimmy Carter, who wrote about his own fear for U.S. democracy in a New York Times op-ed? What did you think of what Biden had to say this morning? And how do you see us pulling our country out of this mess if you do? Six, uh, pardon me, that's my phone number, 877 301 
877-301-8970. Email us at bprwgbh.org or tweet us at BOS Public Radio. I mean, I agree with Chuck. This is the best speech Joe Biden has given at any time, I think, during the campaign, uh, during the year of his presidency or a little bit less than a year of his presidency. It was an important speech and it had to be made. And I can't wait to hear what childish response we'll get from uh, the man he directed his comments at, Donald Trump. Well, I was very glad he was he was very forceful. Uh, he, as I said to Chuck Todd, he went after the the, pres- the previous president in a way he really hadn't before. Talked about his bruised ego, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you, again, you you wonder in this very divided media and and internet uh, way of looking at the world, it, it matters to that side of the world that is hearing things differently. I hope so. But it doesn't, I don't know. but it matters to the side who knows what he's saying is true, that the president of the United States, as Chuck said about his mother, uh, the president of the United States is voicing what a lot of people uh, feel. I think he said it. I, I mean, he's not a brilliant speech maker, but I think the words were exactly what this country needed to hear. You mentioned the bruise ego thing. Here's a little more from Biden this morning, ripping into uh, Trump for spreading lies. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest, and because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can accept he lost. A couple of great lines there. 877-301-8970. Do you think there'll be one Republican today, leading Republican, who's going to stand up and say, I can't take this anymore. Uh, we've got to tell the truth, too. I mean, literally, one leading Republican. By the way, all they have to say, people like Schumer, leader of the, uh, pardon me, uh, McConnell, leader of the Republicans in the Senate, McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in the House, all they have to say is exactly what they said a year ago before they decided to do a 180 <laughs> for whatever yeah. purposes, and that would be perfectly uh, fine. You no, know, the, 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 obviously the most courageous Republican that there is is, is Liz Cheney. <laughs> So, and by the way, I heard her in a podcast this morning uh, for the New York Times talking about how the day of the insurrection, uh, she was there, of course, and she said Jim Jordan, the congressman, you know, that, uh, that Chuck Todd just suggested would run the Trump White House mm-hmm. if Trump is reelected. Uh, Jim Jordan said, we have to get all the ladies out of the aisles. And apparently, when he tried to touch the lady, Liz Cheney, she said something like, get the... F away from me. I don't need your help or something like that. And I just absolutely loved it. Um, she's probably, well, I don't know, maybe she won't lose in Wisconsin, but she's running Wyoming again. Wyoming, too. She may lose Wyoming, in Wisconsin, Wyoming, sorry. but not Wyoming. Wyoming. She's, she's running again in Wyoming, uh, even though she has been trashed all over her state. By the way, uh, the mayor of Boston, Mayor Wood, just announced Boston schools are closed tomorrow, not for COVID reasons, but for snow reasons. 877 877- Three zero one eighty nine seventy. What did you think of Biden this morning? Uh, and how do you feel? Someone out there has got to have a credible thought about how we get from here to there, how we get out of this mess, how we don't have 34% of the American people think violence is an appropriate way to respond to the government. We don't have 69% of the people who voted for Donald Trump believing that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected president of the United States. You know, let me read one more thing before we get started here. This, uh, a lot of people are talking about, as they should, the terrific op-ed written by uh, Jimmy Carter 
in the New York Times. His last paragraph is, is our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss without immediate action. We're at a genuine risk of civil conflict and losing our precious democracy. Americans must set aside differences and work together before it's too late. That's the last line. Can you see a situation out there where Americans do set aside their differences and work together? Uh, I'd like to be able to see that. I can't, but I'm hoping one of you can help uh, nudge us in that direction. Let's start with Roger from Marblehead. Thank you for calling, Roger. Hey, Roger. Hi, guys. Good morning. I just want to say that um, I listened to the uh, speech this morning. I thought it was a good speech and uh, harder than it uh, has been in the past, which is good. But I think really the next step is that Biden has got to order Merrick Garland to legally and lawfully, uh, lawfully eradicate what I call the vermin of vulgar Alago. I mean, this guy is the absolute virus that has infected America and is destroying it. And like COVID, you've got to eradicate it and eliminate it. You cannot solve this problem without Trump being removed from society, uh, whether that's thrown in the you know jail, uh, hobble him financially, but they have got to go after him and eliminate him because you cannot you cannot solve this and start to look for reconciliation between across the country until this virus of a person is removed. Roger, did you watch on, is it Tuesday night on uh, PBS? Did you watch American Insurrection? We had A.C. Thompson who I, put it together. Did I you did, see it? I, I certainly did see it, yes. And did, I assume you agree with our take, which is that the common thread through all of the extremism portrayed in that film, some of it violent and deadly, is inspiration from Donald Trump. I mean, he is the link from Charlottesville to January 6th and beyond is Donald Trump. You you cannot solve this problem without eliminating Trump. And that has to be done legally and lawfully, but it has to be done. And you have to go in there like a pest control company and eradicate the vermin. Roger, we got it. We got it. Thank you for the call. By the way, we talked to about uh, to talk about Garland last night. Had uh, former federal judge Nancy Gardner, yeah, she was great. And former U.S. attorney appointed by uh, George Bush, Michael Sullivan, talking about whether they thought that uh, there should at least be investigation of crimes by Donald Trump. Michael did not. Uh, Michael Sullivan did not. Uh, Nancy Gardner did. Uh, uh, I didn't get any sense at. I mean, the thing I just asked Chuck. Chuck Todd's wired enough that he clearly would have heard from somewhere that there was a grand jury, there was an investigation. I I think the reasonable conclusion is Merrick Garland has decided not to even investigate Donald Trump. Are there any subpoenas to the people around the president? Is he waiting for the January 6th committee, which has no criminal power, by the way, to make a referral? I mean... I don't know, you know, and then you all these stories you hear about the Congress people, uh, Bobert from Colorado, that was supposedly uh, giving people tours the day before. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's this, there's this. Ever since Trump came into office, from the first days when people began to talk about how he was violating the emoluments clause by making money in his hotels uh, um, because he was the president of the United States, mm-hmm. it's been a continual picture of his getting away with everything, and I think that's very disheartening because we're supposed to, no one's supposed to be above the law. Well, the only hope I have on that front, and then we'll get back to your calls, is the January 6th committee, which I have to say I've been pretty impressed by. Virtually mm-hmm. every member who I've heard speak about their investigation has been impressive. The fact that they've actually, while we talk a lot about the few people who are not cooperating, they've interviewed apparently 350 people. Did you see that Stephanie Grisham, the former press secretary to Trump, 
who resigned, I believe on January 6th itself, showed up voluntarily, wasn't even, not, not only not subpoenaed, not even invited in from what I understand. She had a phone conversation with Congressman Jamie Raskin and then just showed up to give testimony or at least information to the January 6th committee. I'm hoping if they are as powerful as I believe they may be, that while it may not move the Trumpsters in America, it may move the Justice Department to do their well, job. Well, what about uh, Pence? Because uh, a couple of Pence's aides are, yeah. are, are cooperating as His well. His chief so of you, staff, short, yeah. You wonder if that means that Pence himself will cooperate. I don't know. Mark and Westwood, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Listen, before I, I talk about what I wanted to call in about, I do want to agree with you, Jim, about if he can't be indicted for election interference for that call to Georgia election officials, mm-hmm. I don't know what he could possibly I'm with you. You know, that's that is clear. And anyway, um, the, the thing I want to talk about is that the people that are his supporters are getting their news. And Marjorie, you know this because you've tuned in um, to the alternative news medias, the Newsmax, One America News, um, even Fox. Um, that's where they're getting their information from, and that's who they believe. And, and I think that those, those stations are spreading lies. They're supporting the big lie, and this is, who they're, this is where they're getting their information from, and they don't get, any other, they don't get it from any other sources. And, Marjorie, I know you've, you say you tune into some of those stations every once in a while. I've tried. I can't listen to Fox for more than two minutes. I know. You get so upset. Turn it off and <laughs> You know what the best part of your call was, Mark, and the most telling is you listed One American Network and Newsmax and then sort of half-assed through in Fox (laughs) News, meaning they're not even the worst uh, uh, disinformation spreader. They're almost like the minor leagues compared to some of the new operations. Facebook is is right in there with the algorithms that target uh, people. I mean, the great example we always give is the person that said they were a Trump supporter. One person said they were a Biden supporter. And within a week, you know, they were getting these violent, horrific things about Biden if they were Trump people and violent horrific things about Trump if they were Biden people. That, that That's really a big factor, too. Mark, thank you very much for your no, call. I- I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. Shoot. If I could have just one more quick sure, moment, sure. I wanted to just give you one example of a Fox News story that I saw that made me shut off the TV. Yep. They were listing the things that Biden has accomplished in his first year in, in office. And, of course, it was uh, the infrastructure and a couple of other things. But then they listed all the things that Biden couldn't get done in his first year in office. And there was probably a dozen. I forget exactly what they were. But they listed all these things and saying, see, he couldn't get it done. He's not a good president. And I want to scream at the TV and say it's because your people are voting against him. You guys voted against it. And now you're blaming him for it. (laughs) Mark, you and Marjorie should have a drink. I think you uh, you're on the same page. Thank you very much for the call. We appreciate it. Eight, seven, seven, three, zero, one, eighty, nine, seventy. So, Marjorie, I was saying I can't construct a route out of this mess, particularly after reading the Jimmy Carter thing about us teetering. I think we are teetering. Do you see it? I mean, how, how do we, what's the breakthrough? What's the, what's the moment? Is it Mitch McConnell having a fit of conscience and standing up and saying, I can't take it anymore. I don't even care if we win the, win the Senate. It is important that Donald Trump lose any influence over this Republican party. What, what is the moment? What is the, the only, thing? The only thing I can think of is if somehow, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema 
and forget about Build Back Better for a moment, um, can get on board with doing something about voting rights because because if we can't do anything about voting rights, then the election in 2022 is going to be rigged. Well, the gerrymandering is not going to be undone. And most people think gerrymandering alone, if nothing else were to change, has converted enough seats for the Republicans to take over. So what do they do when they get back? And, of course, that's the House of Representatives. I don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. Uh, well, you're probably right. Actually, you're probably it, it, right. It, but it's, it's not. It, it is gerrymandering. Obviously, that's a big problem. But if you have partisans throwing out legitimate votes and deciding yeah, whose right. vote counts and deciding whether or not somebody can get a glass of water if they're waiting for six hours uh, to vote in states where uh, things are very crowded and they're run by Republicans, I mean, you could see a tsunami of of real stealing. Yeah. Well, let me be incredibly naive for a second and tell mm-hmm. me that I'm not being naive, that if uh, Raffensperger, is that how you pronounce his name, the Georgia Secretary of State, a Republican who voted for Trump, by the way, had not stood up to Trump in that call when he said, go find me 11,000, whatever it is, 580 votes or whatever he said. If there had been a, a Trump sycophant who said, fine, I found them, you're the winner of Georgia, am I naive to think that even this Supreme Court would uh, strike down any attempt to steal an election in a Georgia, for example, or do they go along for the ride? Too? You know, that's a great question. I don't know. What well, do you we, think? Uh, I naively like to think that even that would be a bridge too far. Stephen Whalen, welcome. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, referring back to Chuck Todd's uh, fear, you mentioned about uh, Trump being elected legitimately. Yeah. My fear is what if he is elected um, and uh, electorally, Mm-hmm. and loses the popular vote one more time. I mean, uh, I can imagine that the protests in Washington will be equal to what they were a year ago, uh, for a legitimate reason, I might say. Well, when you say a legitimate reason, you mean from uh, those on the other side of the spectrum. But, you know, I don't like the Electoral College either. It's the system. If somebody wins the Electoral College but loses the popular vote, they're the president of the United States until we change that system, right? Right. Well, that, that's true, but I think that, uh, that... Whoops. Oh, we lost Steve. Oh, Steve, I'm sorry. We did uh, lose you. Uh, 877-301-897. That's another reform that has been so backburnered. I'm total. I think I'm with where Steve is. This whole notion of electing uh, presidents by electoral college counts rather than direct uh, counting of the number of votes they got across this country is just absolutely insane. Let's go to Susan in Marlborough. Hi, Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hi. Um, I've got kind of a different perspective on this. I have a background in military intelligence, okay. and one of the one of the main uh, weapons they teach you in intelligence school is misinformation. That's very powerful, and we have social media enabling it to be spread far and wide. And um, Putin and uh, Trump are what you might call allies. Mm -hmm. And uh, Putin used to be in the KGB. So do you think he understands how to do this? Well, I think Trump doesn't even need Putin to have his people understand how to do it. But what do we do about it? You have experience in the field. What does one do to deal? There's a First Amendment, unfortunately, when it comes to lies and misrepresentation of facts. There is a First Amendment. Well, I think you at least let people know that the source of the misinformation may not be American. It may be uh, Russian. 
Mm-hmm. It's not it's it's not anybody inside the United States. It's somebody outside the United States uh, being very successful at harming the United States. Well, yeah. Well, I think I think we did learn about that in the in the, in the Russian interference in the first election, but it didn't seem to dissuade people, Susan. Which is one of the things that's that's very upsetting. Maybe they didn't hear it enough reported, and maybe they didn't believe it again. But uh, you, you know, th- there was a lot of uh, certainly. Uh, talk about that. But Susan, thank you very much for the Thanks. call. I mean, she's so right. I mean, it's sort of an echo of a prior curl. I mean, the misinformation, no matter what kind of reforms you make, continue to be a real serious problem. And the only way you, I guess, counter them is with legit information. But people are immune to it. You watch these things like I do on CNN. When these reporters go stop people uh, at Trump rallies, for example, yeah. you think it's a Saturday Night Live routine. I, I, do you think Donald Trump, uh, see, Joe Biden was legitimately elected? No. Well, why do you, you think the, that? Because I know it. Why do you know it? Because I know it. I mean, it's just, it's surreal. What, did what you, you see the, the interview with the person that was a QAnon person that talked about how they were, you know, that John F. Kennedy did not die in a, oh, yeah. in Junior. a plane crash. Junior, Junior yeah, did yeah. not die in a plane crash. And uh, and Robin Williams uh, Come did back not too. tragically take his life. She said, Robin Williams was with our group last night. I saw it. Yeah. And I thought... How was he with their group last night? Did you question By the way, that? for those who know, that's QAnon stuff. And QAnon, JFK Jr. was supposed to return to Dealey Plaza a few months ago. And this is true. I mean, true that they think it and thought it and announced that he was running for as vice president on Donald Trump's real, I mean, re-election ticket. You know, by the way, we're going to talk to somebody a little bit later in the yes, show. Yes, a psychotherapist. Can't wait. Who spends all of her time working to, she doesn't like the word deprogram, but I'll use it for this, essentially to deprogram extremists. People have bought into this BS, and uh, I think it'd be an interesting like and important discussion. Like members of all of our families. We all could use some advice yes. on these fronts. <laughs> These fronts. Okay, we're talking about reaction to the president's speech. We're talking about uh, your fear about our democracy hanging by a thread. We're going to take your calls to the top of the hour, 877-301-8970. You're listening to Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're asking for your thoughts on the fragile state of our democracy and how we make it unfragile. Do you trust our institutions to hold the January 6th bad actors to account? Even after a full year, no consequences for people like Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, Rudy Giuliani, even Trump himself. 877-301-8970. And what did you think of Biden's comments today? The first time he's ever gone directly at Trump. His web of lies, talking about his bruised ego, matters more to him than democracy or the Constitution. 877-301-8970. Tim from Worcester, thank you for calling. Hey, Tim. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Probably his most important speech uh, by far or ever. Uh, I was ready to throw him underneath the bus if he didn't make a speech like this. Uh, It was just amazing. Uh, as a Democrat and a liberal, I just thought he was milk toast up until this day, this morning, right now. Well, yep. that's one happy Democrat. Tim, thank you for the call. We appreciate it. Well, here we have just the opposite from Julie, who just emailed. Say? 
We're going down the tubes. I plan to move to Canada. Biden is completely ineffective during a time of crisis, including the bogus commission on the Supreme Court when it needs to be expanded, weak AG, and we need someone very aggressive. And he's unable to strong arm mansion and cinema on voting rights and build back better. She doesn't like Biden. She calls him weak, senile, and feckless. So there you well, go. Well, okay. So let's... We'll mark her undecided. 877-301-89. I mean, there's a lot of that. I don't mean the adjectives, but her factual retelling of what he hasn't been able to accomplish is true. And by the way, I I like the fact that he apparently is not – I hate the expression putting your hand on the scale, but I'm about to use it. He's putting his hand on the scale of what the the Justice Department does. Having said that, uh, I tend to agree with Chuck Todd. He picked the judge to be – the head, uh, not a prosecutor, to be the Attorney General of the United States. And it doesn't appear to be in Garland's bones, despite the words of yesterday, to hold people accountable. I mean, what I said is totally true. It's all the soldiers, not the generals. I don't mean literally the generals, uh, who have been held accountable. And the fact that it is a year, a year since this has happened, and not one higher up, not one organizer of any of this has been, at least as far as we know, yeah. even investigated, is surreal. And by the way, I'm not a prosecutor, but we can ask Andrew Cabral this at noon. Uh, most prosecutors believe you got to move quickly after crimes are committed because memories fade, evidence disappears, that sort of stuff. And so uh, I would argue a year is enough time to get these you know, wheels in motion. I remember we were all, you and I were railing against the former Attorney General of Massachusetts, Tom Riley, when he did not indict Cardinal Law for, we were. for we were. Um, knowingly uh, allowing priests to go from parish to parish and continue molesting children. And in that case, I thought he should have done it because to me it wouldn't have mattered whether he was convicted or not. He was indicted. That was such a disgrace. Mm-hmm. Now I wonder whether, which is worse, for Trump to be indicted and acquitted or not indicted at all. But there's a step before that, Marjorie. As we said, there is no evidence that there's even been an, been an investigation of yeah. Trump's involvement in this. Maybe we're wrong, but I, again, as I said to Chuck and I've said to you repeatedly, uh, it is almost impossible to believe that an investigation like that could be going on at some level in the Justice Department without some leaks to the press. So no subpoenas, no grand juries, no investigations as far as we know. That's, to me... A little troubling. This didn't. While there were a lot of people on Capitol Hill that day who were independent actors, there were a lot of people who were part of organized groups. They didn't just show up there. And so, uh, in any case, Jack in a car. Hi. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Welcome. Listener, caller. We appreciate that, Jack. Uh, Thanks. I, sure. Uh, I'm kind of disappointed in President Biden's speech frankly, because I think he had an opportunity to use words in some way to unite the country, and he failed to do that. Um, I honestly feel the opposite of the previous caller that I think he should have not gone so hard after Trump, because if if his audience is that 69% of Republicans who still believe that... Biden stole the election, yep. then he didn't reach any of them, okay? But Jack, Jack, can I interrupt you a second? But isn't that isn't what you wanted Biden to do today exactly what, what he's, he's done for doing. almost a year? Yeah. I'm not quarreling with whether you're right about the message, but it seems to me that's the message he's attempted to reach out to those non-believers, for lack of a better expression, for almost the whole year he's been in office, hasn't he? 
I don't see it. I, I don't see the examples where he's done that. I, frankly, we haven't heard nearly enough out of him. He should be talking to us weekly. He should be having uh, major speeches on a much more frequent basis, in my view, addressing these major concerns. Well, I, I hear you. I just the place that I respectfully disagree, and we appreciate your first call. We hope we hear another one from you soon, is I think that one of the criticisms of him from some unhappy with the state of our democracy has been that he has been uh, too willing to put a hand out. But obviously you see it differently, and we appreciate that. 877-301-897. You know how frustrating it must be for him, too? I don't mean just because of the ego of a president. I have no idea how big his ego is, I assume. It's got to be bigger. You don't get to those places. This is a guy whose whole life, his whole career, has been working across the aisle. Is you know, working with his fellow Republicans who are his friends, including Mitch McConnell, by the way, or friend of sorts. This has got to be torturous and also just confounding to a guy who's who believes in bipartisan behavior. Well, how can you have bipartisan behavior at this juncture? I, no, I agree. I, I don't know. I agree. I, that, that's the problem. People talk about working across the aisle. Well, I, I think that's gone by the boards now when you have the majority of, of Republicans in Congress talking about a stolen election, and most of them know that they're lying. Mm. I mean, politicians may lie. We always hear that politicians lie all the time. Well, this is kind of the biggest, <laughs> most crazy one I've encountered uh, uh, where there's like a mass uh, lying effort, and it's purely because they don't think they can get reelected without it. You know, uh, one of the things when I was reading the history of a year ago, and while well, you remember the big events, you know, another argument for term sm- limits, by the way, Jim. The small, yeah, you know, who's got to pass term limits for them to apply to members of Congress? <laughs> they do. Members of Congress, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In any case, let's just take calls. Phyllis, Phyllis from Newton. Hi, Phyllis. Hi. Thank you for the the call, sure. and I want to. It's a perfect uh, statement to follow up on what Marjorie just said. Yep. Because I thought the speech was was uh, the right tone. I thought it was strong. And now we, the people, need to each call all of our representatives, our senators, our governors, everyone, and ask the simple question, was Joe Biden uh, elected and was he elected in a free and fair election? And if our representatives uh, say no, then we say we want you to show the evidence and we want you to go publicly and state. So we need to turn this attention not just to Trump. But to all of the people who are letting Trump say these lies. Phyllis, you know, Phyllis, 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 in the abstract, uh, you have a wonderful thought. But I assume you would agree that one of the reasons that these would-be destroyers of democracy continue to perpetrate the big lie is because they've created a monster in their district where the vast majority of their constituents believe the big lie that they've perpetrated. So when they get that phone call, the phone call is going to be... Keep on going. You know, stay with our man, Donald Trump. The, the, that's the problem. As I Let me repeat, this poll this morning, 69% of the people who voted for Donald Trump, that's roughly, let me do the math, five, 50 million people don't believe uh, today that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. So in the abstract, Phyllis, I'm with you. I think practically we're not there. Phyllis, thanks you know- for the call. There was, in this story that we read this morning from the Washington Post that was about um, how Republicans became the party of Trump's election lie, they talk about what happened to one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, and this was uh, Representative Tim, uh, Tom Rice from South Carolina. Yeah. Um, 
of the 10, each has received at least one primary challenger. This guy Rice has faced is facing at least 10 primary opponents in his, in his re-election bid, and he was censured by his own state party, which refused to invite him to a big Republican conference right in his hometown of Myrtle Beach. So this is what's happening um, to these Republicans, which means the next group of Republicans will probably be, I mean, will, will we even have one or two? Was there not, was Mitt Romney, he was either censured by the Utah Republican Party or not invited or some, I mean, it was either very close to a censure or uh, a censure itself for a guy who was their party's nominee to be the president of the United States not terribly long did you ago. Read, did you read about Jason Riddle from New Hampshire? No. Yeah, well, he's one of the candidates uh, for House, up, um, uh, for the U.S. House that were at the Capitol during the, the riots and the insurrection. Supposedly he was chugging wine inside the building that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says that uh, he, he doesn't expect an uh, endorsement from Trump, even though he's a big Trump guy, because he figures that the former president wants some distance from the rioters. And Riddle out that if he's sentenced to, the jan- for, uh, to jail for the January 6th crimes, he's not upset about that. Because he'll run from jail, he says, it will give me something to do. That's well, no, actually a very constructive <laughs> thought. I, I admire him for his – I admire him. Ellen New Hampshire a, voters, he's your guy. Ellen in a car, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about the representatives because I feel like they're all – like they're going to eat each other. They're going to all crazy each other. Mm-hmm. Like the Tea Party ate the Gingrich crowd. You know, these guys are eating the Tea Party crowd. Um, it always like – it tends to go overboard, but I'm really concerned about our society as a whole. I agree with you. That is not believing doctors, not believing teachers. It's like not believing math. I'm like, we really need engineers to do specific math to build bridges. We need doctors to cure disease. We need teachers to teach our children how to become productive adults. And everything is now in question. Everything is up for individual ideas, individual opinion, instead of collective fact. Ellen, did and you see? Did you see? Great call. Ellen, great point. Ellen, did you see the poll that came out in the last few days, in which a minority of the American people said they believed in science? It was something like forty-three or forty-four? You, you are so right. You are. You are. So, so do you have a cure for that, by the way, or or? You're just bemoaning it. I think the only thing you can really do is just, I mean, stick to, I, I, I don't know. At, at some point, and, and the Trump people and the people who aren't believing in vaccines, at some point they have to face up to the facts of it. When people on their deathbed are saying, I wish I got I the know. vaccine, you know what I mean? Or the other thing, too, I, I hate to say it, I really don't think that the American people even understand simple biology. When they say to you, well, my cousin was double vaxxed and he still got COVID, <laughs> it doesn't wipe away COVID. It just mitigates the effects of it. That's it. Ellen, people, I, I can't even believe they don't understand that. Ellen, we got to go, but you got to call more often. Thank you for... Uh... <laughs> Your call. I think you uh, nailed it. That's Thank right. You. That's one of the previous emailers. So they're, they're moving to Canada, Jim. They've, they've given up the ship. You know, <laughs> in all fairness, I mean, I can understand the point of view that science is sort of yesterday kind of thing. <laughs> don't you think? 
it really. I like the people who said, "I haven't f- finished doing my research," and I'm thinking, "Really, yeah. you're, you're you're doing your research there? I mean, did how about you go the to woman, medical school? How about the woman who had the conversion the other day? I told you on CNN after being in a coma from COVID for two months, <laughs> she now says she believes in the vaccine. So that's all we need. Okay, coming up, we are going to talk with Andrew Cabral for another edition of Law & Order. Get her thoughts on this week's verdict from the trial of former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Plus, Manhattan District Attorney is following in the heels of Rachel Rollins here on What to Prosecute. Andrew Cabral joins for that and more next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll get Andrea Cabral's thoughts on January 6th, then on the significance of the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes. Later, the return to school after winter break has been less than smooth, with teachers and bus drivers calling out sick with COVID and districts scrambling to get everybody tested. Paul Revel will join us to discuss this and Harvard's decision to nix SAT requirements through 2026. Then what do you do if someone you know has fallen down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and extremism? We'll talk with a psychotherapist who's expert at this, and she'll tell us how bringing people out of the vortex of hate can actually be done. Then Representative Catherine Clark will bring her own thoughts to the January 6th anniversary and talk about the future, we hope, of American democracy. That's all coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Howdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. You know, during the uh, news break, I was rereading uh, Joe Biden's speech from this morning. I'll say again what I said at 11 o'clock after having heard it live. This is so un-Biden-like, but was so, nece- at least in my estimation, necessary to be said. It was really, if you didn't hear it, we'll play more excerpts a little bit later in the show, but I would suggest you uh, listen to it all before you go to bed tonight. But first, joining us online for this week's edition of Law & Order is Andrew Cabral. Andrew is the former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety for Massachusetts, and now the CEO of Ascend. Hello there, Andrew Cabral, and Happy New Year. Hello there. Happy New Year to you and Marjorie. Well, wow. Actually, this you. is my first show after the uh, afternoon. Yes, after the it is. Andrew, you sound so cheerful. It's great to talk to you. <laughs> Any particular yeah, reason? It, it'll last until the end of this week, and then, <laughs> <laughs> then it will be gone. Okay. I think it'll last till the first question, well, actually. You know, speaking of sounding <laughs> cheerful and, and, and having and, and being hopeful, um, this is a this is a somber anniversary today, of course, of the insurrection a, a year ago at the Capitol. I wonder if you have any thoughts, or if you're uh, on that, or about where we're headed as a democracy. Oh, okay, Marjorie. Sorry, no, you were okay. right, Jim. It's the first, it's the first question. Sorry, uh, right on the nose. Um, well, I, I'm amazed at how long it took for the word insurrection to actually become part of the fabric of the narrative because it was minimized so immediately, so strategically, so intentionally Mm -hmm. uh, after it was done. But this, you know, people, I think, get that this was an attempted overthrow um, of uh, of government. Nothing, Nothing more, nothing less than that. 
um, and you know we use words like sedition and treason and, and all of that, but that's what this was, and it came from the executive branch. That's what spurred it and incited it. It came from the president. We had a president of the United States that incited the overthrow of government because he lost an election and didn't want to accept that. And, um, you know, I think Ayanna Presley, who's, you know, uh, quoted uh, in the Globe today, is absolutely right that people should remain, she used the word uncomfortable. I think yeah. people should remain completely discomfited, completely uh, upset and outraged about this and make sure that it doesn't happen again. Because believe me, like, like all other revolts or attempted insurrections, that was the first shot across the bow. There's never just a first shot. There are more shots to come. And how we deal with this, and I suggest that we should maybe speed this up a little bit, um, will determine um, how it ultimately ends. But it is by no stretch of the imagination um, the end of this, this, you know, the prosecution of certain insurrectionists is by no, no matter at what level, to quote Merrick Garland, there's not the end of this. And this is something that we need to be incredibly vigilant about and proactive in preventing. Do you think, uh, well, speaking of Merrick Garland, uh, did you buy what he was selling uh, yesterday? I mean, there's no, as we said to Chuck Todd earlier this morning, there is no independent evidence at all. Subpoenas, grand juries, leaked investigation information. There's no evidence that he's pursuing any of the higher-ups, even though he said yesterday he would. And I, and how do you, to use your words to make sure it doesn't happen again, if you don't hold the people responsible accountable, you're almost encouraging it to happen again, I would argue. Yes, I think, I think that is absolutely spot on. That you, and that is actually the history um, of every sort of revolt or insurrection is that when nothing is done, um, then, you know, you can get, you're pretty much guaranteed that it's going to happen again. I think, you know, he is by nature this sort of circumspect person, and, and obviously the DOJ doesn't talk about um, ongoing investigations, but grand jury subpoenas are never secret. Either the person who is subpoenaed or somebody who knows the person who is subpoenaed uh, always, you know, or usually leaks that sure. uh, someone is being asked to come before a grand jury. And you're right, we haven't heard uh, any of that with regard to the higher-ups. I, I do think that the public pressure and the pressure from lawmakers, which I do not characterize as political pressure because um, holding insurrectionists to account is not about, it shouldn't be about being a Democrat or a Republican, it should be about preserving democracy. But the pressure from lawmakers, I do think, has gotten his attention. Which well, you know, he's six months late. He should have given the speech he gave, you know, uh, yesterday. He should have given, or day before yesterday, he should have given uh, six months ago, and he should have been then six months in by this time, uh, further in to these investigations. We're talking to Andrew Capral. Andrew, let's move on to the uh, the uh, trial of Elizabeth Holmes. She, of course, was the former head of Saranos, who uh, told was going to revolutionized medicine by, you know, just a drop of blood was going to be able to indicate all sorts of problems that you may have. Uh, and of course, the technology did not work. And, and she was convicted for um, misleading, defrauding, fraud, a bunch of things. What do you make of this case? It's such a fascinating case on so many levels. So um, she claimed that she had developed this machine called the Edison, which 
would with just a t- what she used to always say in interviews, a teeny drop of blood right. would be able to diagnose 20 different uh, illnesses. Um, she actually used to give interviews early on. She gave more than one where she suggested that, you know, that technology had already been developed and she was already looking past that to technology yeah. that would uh, allow her, uh, she would develop that would, you didn't even have to touch the touch person free, or take right. their blood yep. in order to, right. So she was, even early on, this is, she's, this is when she was in her early 20s. Right. Um, and, and If you uh, believe this fraud, you know, have I got another fraud for you? That's essentially her message. Go ahead. Right. I mean, but, but that's really what, part of what makes this so fascinating is that this is, you know, Charles Ponzi wasn't the first person to come <laughs> along and think about a, a scheme to defraud investors. It's his oldest time. It's what P.T. Barnum talked about. The thing is that technology moves so quickly, and there is so much money to be made in a short time, even in failed companies, that yeah. you can get, like she did, you can raise $900 million from the likes of Rupert Murdoch and others and have a company valued at $9 billion and never do any of the things that you said you could do. It's a job and, I'd and like. So here, yeah. I mean, so this woman does this. She, she, she has literally has these very distinguished former cabinet officials and people like Henry Kissinger, yeah. people sitting on her board. Jim Mattis. And they're all in. They absolutely believe she can do this. And her, the technology never worked. She ended up using commercial machines made by other companies to do all of the tests while pretending that the tests were being done by the Edison machine. She was charged with, I think, 11 counts of wire fraud, nine of which were actual wire fraud, two were conspiracy, and then four counts of defrauding patients. She was acquitted, actually, on all four counts of defrauding patients. This jury found that despite the fact that she clearly knew that the technology didn't work and was still simultaneously promoting that technology to investors and the public, that she didn't intend to defraud patients except that she knew that she wasn't using her machine to diagnose this blood, to test this blood. They believed her somehow that she fervently believed in her work, despite the fact that she had to know that it didn't actually work. They said that patients, she didn't intend to harm patients. And the other, so that is another layer of what makes this fascinating is that who she is, and she, you know, presents. Uh, she, you know, she used to. She used to dress differently. She used to dress all in black. She used to sort of like dress Steve, like Jobs. Steve Jobs. Yeah. yeah. She lowered yeah, the her voice by yep. a couple of octaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To to sound to give herself more gravitas. I mean, she really did sort of put this package together for herself. And she had sh- this short blonde hair. She now looks very different. She's grown her hair out. Um, but she, you know, it 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 just says a lot about. Who is doing the persuading when it comes to a jury as to what they will buy? And with no, meaning no disrespect to the jury, I think Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Holmes proved on the witness stand why she was so successful at getting people to believe that Theranos was actually yes. uh, a profitable, successful company. Well, she was a very impressive, even charismatic uh, person. And I, I love that there was a story from somewhere today, in the Globe, actually, that talked about her routine, getting up at 4 a.m., rise and thank God, then exercise, meditation, prayer, breakfast of a banana and whey, and then she'd be off to the office at 6 o'clock. And then from, apparently from 5 to 6, she, pra- she practiced 
elocution, poise, and how to obtain it. And then from seven to nine, study needed inventions. They were comparing her to great, uh, uh, Jay Gatsby from the great F. Scott Fitzgerald book, you know, that was that was scaring people too. He was a bootlegger, but he was also selling uh, fake bonds. You know, she she was a character that managed to pull this off. And many people have pointed out that other people in Silicon Valley have come close to doing what she did, never quite as quite as dramatic because she's um, the first woman really after Martha Stewart, right, to to right. end up in, in the slammer, which she is where she's going to end up. But I'm tremendously bothered by the fact that you just alluded to this sort of, you know, uh, self-improvement plan. And yeah. her, her attorneys put this before the jury. And, you know, she, it, they, one of her, she, they listed what they put before the jury, her rules at Theranos. I am never a minute late. Yeah. I show no excitement. All yeah. about business. I am not impulsive. Yeah. I know the outcome of every encounter. I do not hesitate. I constantly make decisions, change them as needed. I speak rarely. I call BS immediately. Yet... Part of her defense was that she was being abused and controlled by her boyfriend and that that was why she wasn't responsible for this. Now, listen, it is, it is possible to be a successful woman and still be experiencing domestic violence and abuse and control. Right. In her particular case, I find that almost impossible to believe, and I think she relied on uh, that to provide more of a defense for her. Um, and she made herself a victim where this self-improvement plan, that is not, the, you know, that's not the mark of a victim. No, it is not. And being able to raise $900 million and get very important people on the board before she, she met this particular boyfriend, the CEO, who was the CEO of the company. That doesn't speak to that for me. And I think, you know, for all of the women who legitimately raise that issue, um, in their defense at any type of trial, I, uh, that I find abhorrent because I don't believe for a second that any of that applied to her. You know, well, of course, uh, you know Ghislaine, the- Ghislaine Maxwell did the same thing, right? I was in just a similar, say, in, yeah. yeah, in a right. similar way in her trial to blaming Jeffrey Jelaine Epstein. Jelaine to you, Jelaine, by I'm sorry. It's, uh, I'm sorry. Jelaine Maxwell uh, did the same, blaming Jeffrey Epstein for uh, controlling her, and it didn't work for her either. Well, oh. that brought Is silence Andrew from Andrea Cabral. Did we lose Andrea? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't okay. know she was asking. I didn't realize you were asking Sorry. the question. I, yeah, I agree with you. I didn't think that she? That was the right, end of the sentence. Didn't she? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, in both cases, I think the jury could see past that because of, because of who the individuals are and the way they are, uh, the, the evidence that comes forward about the way they went about committing their crimes, um, I think, you know, juries can see past that. Uh, and, and certainly in Elizabeth Holmes's case, uh, the level of control that she was exercising over the company, over the company's messaging, over the employees in the company, just ran completely counter It was a counterintuitive uh, idea that someone uh, far less public, far less um, impressive was controlling her. You know, the best part of this whole case to me, and I know I'm not alone, is that all these masters of the universe, these geniuses who invested zillions of dollars, <laughs> who are the smartest people on earth, were totally right. fooled by this 20-year-old woman, or at least the beginning 20-year-old right. woman. It is unbelievable that none of them <laughs> pierced that veil, for lack of a better uh, expression. We're talking to uh, Andrea Cabral. Hey, Andrea, I just read a piece about... Uh, 
a criminal record uh, reform being contemplated on Beacon Hill. And one of the major theses was that the reform that was done last time, which I think was done while you were there with Deval Patrick, doesn't cause call for automatic uh, disappearance, expungement, whatever, of uh, certain criminal records, particularly for minors after a certain number of uh, years. Is, do I have it right, both in terms of what yeah. is being proposed and what you guys did and didn't do? And why didn't you go the whole nine yards towards automatic expungement rather than having an individual have to request expungement, which I know is a step in a positive direction, but not a step as far as is being suggested now. Right. So what Governor Patrick um, did was uh, what he could control within the executive branch, which was the Corey Board, the Criminal Offender Record Information Board, falls under the, uh, the Public Safety Secretariat and uh, the Undersecretary of uh, uh, Criminal Justice. What he, was, what he set out to do was um, uh, control what information an employer, uh, a financial aid office, uh, a housing, uh, in, you know, someone who's providing housing would get when they That's ran right. a background That's check. Right. Right, right. So that was the step that was taken. I That's forgot. why it was called yeah. Corey reform, because yeah. it, it drastically changed what information was put before someone who was going to make a significant decision in the life of another person. Um, and also changed not just the, the types of felonies and misdemeanors and the periods of times uh, of time that uh, those convictions uh, would stand before they were made available, but also um, uh, took away a lot of the ancillary information that would only confuse employers and loan officers. That would just make them think, oh, this person is a horrible person. I don't even understand what I'm reading, but I'm going to err on the side of caution and, you know, give the housing or give the loan to someone uh, whose record doesn't scare me. So that was, that's really what Corey reform was about. This is a legislative, um, uh, this is the legislature doing what it ought to do, which is to address by statute, how uh, criminal records are expunged or sealed. And Massachusetts does, I would agree with Jay Blitzman, who's a, a former juvenile court judge who's quoted in the piece, we do lag behind a number of other states. We do make it difficult. You have to petition uh, the court, uh, and um, the process is slow. Uh, people aren't sure whether or not they need to have an attorney. Um, so in some cases, the process is difficult to sort of, uh, isn't well explained, I'll, I'll put it that way. And so that's what the legislature is considering. The focus of this particular story is about juvenile cases, yeah. which for the most part should be no-brainers. I mean, every, you know, most people agree that you commit an offense when you're a juvenile, and now, you know, the 17 is considered to be a juvenile. That rule changed in uh, 2013. But that when you're in your 30s and your 40s and you've had no issues, um, that shouldn't come back to haunt you. So the automatic expungement that's spoken about in the story has a lot to do um, with uh, juvenile records. But I suspect that ultimately the legislation uh, will address uh, some of the barriers as applied to adult criminal records as well. By the way, two things. One, we should not leave the impression this is a done deal. These are bills pending on Beacon Hill, so we have no idea, at least I have no idea, if they're about to get to the governor's desk and what he'd do. You talked about people who committed an offense as a juvenile, and it's a no-brainer that there'd be expungement down the line. I've never understood. How about for people who haven't committed an offense, or at least even if they did, were arrested but not convicted? 
What I've never understood is, other than prosecutors themselves, who should have, I assume, access to everything, maybe I'm wrong, maybe some criminal defense lawyers out there will be upset with me, but let's start with that, that prosecutors have access to everything. Why should any member of the public, an employer or anybody else, have access to an arrest record when there was no conviction based on the arrest? Well, you, you can. I think that was what Corey, for, Corey reform was about. So if, if we do a background check uh, on someone who's going to uh, work at one of our retail stores and, yeah. and thereby enter the cannabis industry and these checks are required by the Cannabis Control Commission, what we will get back will only be convictions. Um, oh, even under so current law? Even under current law right now? Yes. <laughs> oh, I was so wrong. You okay. may see, sometimes you'll see an arrest and an arraignment, and you won't find a disposition, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't one. I mean, the rule is supposed to be that you're supposed to see, uh, you know, a disposition of a conviction. That's what you're supposed to get. And that's really what Corey reform was about. There are some record-keeping, you know, issues. Sometimes we, you know, we get back um, a check that doesn't quite give us uh, the right information, um, but those, you know, we kind of expect that those glitches are, are, are expected to happen, but it should be convictions. Um, and uh, you may see a dismissal if it's a number of charges, and that was one of a set of four charges that comprised a single uh, criminal complaint. On occasion, you know, I've seen that on the background checks, but it is largely convictions of um, misdemeanors and felonies, and only certain types, I think, of misdemeanors. Well, then, maybe I misunderstand this, too, but I'm glad you brought up uh, whatever the, the rules of the road are for uh, employers in the marijuana industry, like you are, to send. If a, if a kid, uh, if a minor... Uh, even has been convicted of something, and he or she is now 30 and applies for a job with you, what's the deal with that? What do you see, and what are you required to do or not do? So recently there was a change made to um, the levels of access. So this is – I don't want to get too deep in the weeds in this. Okay. But there are different levels of access to criminal record, uh, criminal offender record information, depending on who's asking. Um, so there have been some recent changes to what is available in terms of juvenile uh, and youthful offender criminal history. Youthful offenders are defined as uh, people between the ages of 17 and 21. So you actually get past the age of majority, you could still be considered to be a youthful offender. And um, that, I think, I don't think that it affected the cannabis industry, so I didn't drill down, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. what we see. I didn't drill down too, uh, too far into it. But there, in some circumstances, depending on uh, the inform- who's seeking the information and, and the purpose, there may be some juvenile um, uh, criminal in, uh, record information that is made available to certain I won't, even, I won't even go as far as to say employers because I didn't look at all the categories, the specific categories of uh, the requesters. But there, I do know that there was a recent change that we were notified about. It just didn't affect us uh, specifically. But, there was that, but I do think that there are some circumstances in which it would be relevant, um, depending on who's seeking the information and the age of the person that they're mm-hmm. seeking the information about, to have some information about convictions uh, as a juvenile. Now, Andrea, you have a big fan here, and he wants me to ask you a very important question before you go. He wants to know. Yeah, really? Yes. <laughs> Bob, me, Bob wants to know if you will run for district attorney of Suffolk County. What do you think, Andrea? <laughs> <laughs> 
Why is everybody laughing? I very much appreciate. I'm sorry? Why is everybody laughing? You were a prosecutor in Suffolk County, right? I mean, you're you're a lawyer, you're a prosecutor. Bob is ready to start the team here. He's ready. He wants to sign you up, Andrea. Well, I, what I will say is I thank Bob for his question, okay. and, and, uh, I, and I do. I appreciate it. But, you know, I've sort of been there, done that. I ran for, for sheriff twice. Um, there is a wealth of really sort of brilliant, you know, talent out there that yeah. is interested in the job, and I think we're going to have some great choices, uh, you know, for Suffolk County. But I appreciate uh, his interest and in his question. But well, you know, thanks, oh, well, but no thanks. let's stay there for one second. For those who don't know, uh, uh Rachel Rollins submitted her resignation yesterday to the governor. She's sworn in as a U.S. attorney on Monday. She'll be with me on TV next week, by the way. But uh, the governor gets to pick the interim uh, district attorney until there is an election. Uh, who would be on your list, uh, Andrew Cabral? Um, well, certainly Kevin Hayden. I mean, I've known Kevin for a very long time. We were prosecutors together in Suffolk County. He's been the head of the Sex Offender Registry yeah. Board um, for uh, the last many years, actually. Um, he's, an ex- he's excellent. He's got an excellent background. He's a great prosecutor. Um, I think that there are – I'm trying to think of who else was – I know that, uh, that uh, there were a couple of people who had been interviewed. I don't think Dan Mulhern is, is still interested. I think at one point Rachel Rollins had, had sort of promoted him yep. as, yes. as her choice. I think uh, he's withdrawn, yeah, so I think he's withdrawn. Um, I'm trying to think of who the other people were that that uh, wanted to be considered. Yeah, uh, Andrea, I think Michael Flaherty was on the list. Yes, and Linda he was Champion on the list. was interviewed by the uh, by the governor's office. Linda Champion ran for uh, right. district attorney when Rachel Rollins ran. But I I suspect that now that Rachel Rollins has been confirmed, more people will uh, will throw their hat in the ring to be elected, regardless of who puts yeah. their hat in the ring to be appointed. I think, right. I think the, when it comes time for the election, you're going to see a lot of people um, seeking that office who might not bother to seek the appointment. I would just say, before we close, is in light of the fact that this is a DA's race where I think everybody who voted for Rollins in overwhelming landslide fashion knew that the centerpiece of her agenda was these minor offenses that would uh, the default would be that they'd not be prosecuted. I would hope that the governor chooses somebody who shares that same philosophy that was embraced by the uh, well, people of Suffolk County a couple of years ago. Andrea, I would just like to say I understand your reticence of getting back into the political fray. If I had a choice go. between being the Suffolk County DA and running a pot store, I know what my <laughs> choice would be without question. <laughs> You've made the correct one. Andrea, good to see you. Happy New Year. <laughs> Thanks Happy a lot. Happy New Year. Andrea Cabral. Andrea Cabral is a former Suffolk County sheriff. She's done her she's done her stint, Jim, and the former Secretary of Public Safety and a former prosecutor in Suffolk County, and she is now the CEO of Ascend. Coming up. After an especially chaotic week in the world of education, it is time for a news roundup of what is going on with our schools. With former State Education Secretary Paul Revel, he's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and uh, Marjorie Egan. Here to bring us up to speed on the state of schools as the nation grapples with the spread of Omicron is Paul Revel. Paul is the former Secretary of Education and a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Lynn Sachs, is called Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Good to talk to you, Paul. Happy New Year. Hello, Jim and Marjorie. Happy New Year to you. Hey, great to talk to you again, Paul. So uh, Mayor Wu decided earlier today that Boston schools would be closed tomorrow because it's going to be snowing. A lot of people seem to watch schools in many parts of the country and um, some around here closed because of the Omicron virus spreading so dramatically. And the mayor herself has said that at some point it's going to become unmanageable to keep the schools open because of staff absences. So where are we uh, with Omicron and the schools um, in Boston and around the Commonwealth? Well, you used the right word in introducing the segment, Marjorie, when you said it was a chaotic uh, and unusually chaotic period of time in public schools. We have, you know, I, I think a good way to think of this at, at, at top level is there's some tension between the strategies that you'd put into place and the policies that you'd put into place to protect students' physical health versus what you would do to protect their mental health. And we've got sort of a tension between those two. On the one hand, for their physical health, you'd be super cautious um, about um, bringing people back together when you've got a highly transmissible disease. And you take a lot of precautions with respect to masking and testing and vaccinations and uh, including staff and um, and students. On the other hand, if you were worried about what are now well-documented effects of um, uh, remote learning, that it really contributed to a uh, massive and growing mental health crisis among young people from being disconnected from school, you'd say, we've got to do whatever we can to get them back to school. We will have to recognize that the the risk of serious illness in that population is is relatively small, though the risk to teachers and other staff who are in contact with them uh, remains high. Uh, but you try and do whatever you could to get them back into school. And so what we're seeing around the Commonwealth is the tension between these things in the midst of, of um, you know, an unprecedented outbreak of the virus, uh, which while the effects seem to be milder than the effects of the original Alpha and Delta versions, um, the um, the spread is is widespread and uh, and getting larger and uh, you know has not yet peaked. Well, you know, I, but I, I hear all that, and, and I operate in the assumption that virtually everybody, all the players, agree with every word you said. They may reach different conclusions when they're weighing those competing, well, arguably competing uh, uh, issues. However, the thing I don't understand, and Mayor Wu has been raising this too, let's assume you try to keep the schools open, but the staff shortages because of COVID are so intense that you just can't do it. For example, I had Mayor Wu with me on TV two nights ago. That day, a thousand people had uh, uh, not shown up for work, mostly for COVID reasons. There were 461 teachers out. My, I think I read in the paper there were 500 substitute teachers in Boston, so there are only so many people to fill the slots, including Brenda Casilius herself, who taught a fifth grade yeah. class yesterday. Right. Super I love it. <laughs> if it turns out you do your best and you just don't have the person power to keep kids in school, despite your concerns about the mental health implications, why is it okay for the governor's position to be that if you do remote learning, that you won't get any credit towards the 180-day requirement of in-school 
learning. I don't quite get that. As long as you can demonstrate you've done all you can to try to do in-person schooling. Well, I mean, buried in the fine print of the, the policy that's in place right now is the opportunity for school districts to appeal for a waiver here. Oh, they can't so, get a waiver. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that is possible. And I, th- I think what you have is the governor staking out a position and the commissioner staking out a position is that uh, we want districts to do everything possible and then some to get people to school. We want to make this the norm, the expectation. Uh, yet at the same time, I mean, if you can't, you can't. I mean, it's just, you know what you didn't mention in Boston is I, I understood uh, whether it was yesterday or today they had forty seven buses without drivers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you literally can't drive people into school. So um, if you can't get them there, and if you don't have the teachers and you don't have the aides, you don't have the food in the cafeteria. Well, you're not going to have school, and the state at some point is going to have to acknowledge that. Would you have done the same thing when you were Secretary of Education that? Uh, Baker and the department are doing now, Paul? I I think I would have been in roughly the same vicinity of saying, yeah, this is the expectation. We want people to try extraordinarily hard Mm -hmm. to get there. And and if you can't, uh, we'll take a look at the circumstances and we'll waive accordingly. But I don't understand why it's such a big deal to say it's not going to count toward the 180 days because we, we heard so much last year about how difficult was remote learning was, particularly with um, kids that didn't have somebody to supervise them and there were many children and one uh, single mom, that kind of stuff. Why do the remote learning, but but add on the end of the, make sure that you have enough days of learning. I don't think the school year is long enough. That's the policy, by the is. way. That's exactly yeah, what I'm, the governor's well, doing. I know, but you're saying that there's something wrong with that. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because... I don't think remote learning from what we've learned for most people is as good. So just learn remotely in those days. You have to shut down the schools, but then make sure you make mm-hmm. up that time in person. Is I think it's, you know, realistically, it, it'll be some combination. I mean, some of these districts have already chosen to shut down. And so they're going to be in a situation where they're either going to use up all their snow days and who knows what the win- winter holds. Or, um, you know, they're going to have to make their appeal to the department based on, okay, well, we put in a certain amount of remote learning and we put in and we did a certain number of days that were just no learning. And that ought to figure into the calculus as to how many days we have to add. I mean, we're 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 in a field that gets paranoid about any kind of creeping of the school year into late June or July. God forbid it should interfere with people's vacation plans that uh, children's learning might get in the way of that. Um, So, I mean, people are anxious about that, but I I think obviously we're in extraordinary circumstances that call for extraordinary measures. And one last question about remote learning. What I don't understand is, you know, we know about the Chromebooks going out last year and all this kind of stuff. Are most of the schools in the Commonwealth ready to just switch on a dime back to remote learning, or would this take a few days of getting everybody up and ready? And frankly, if the staff is sick with COVID and they're home, I don't know how much remote learning they could supervise anyway. Well, it's a good question. I think, you know, our field, um, in terms of uh, the the field of education and the utilization of technology, was really uh, behind the curve. Uh, And some people would argue in the dark ages before the whole COVID crisis happened. And then virtually overnight, we had to embrace technology that we'd um, been reluctant to embrace up until that point. 
And I think we did a pretty good job of putting together an emergency response through, um, uh, you know, the period of time when we had to do it in in the uh, spring of 2020 and then the next school year. But so I I think in a lot of places, they've gotten to a pretty good utilization of remote learning. In other places, they're still at the kind of emergency response. And this fall, since everybody's been back in school, schools have kind of fallen out of the habit of using it. So I think your your notion that, you know, it's going to take a few days, particularly as we're bringing in all kinds of substitutes now because teachers are sick who don't have the background in doing remote learning that um, we're going to need to do much more in the way of professional development with teachers on on technology to bring it anywhere close to state of the art that we see in other industries. You know, to add one more burden to the schools that uh, as if they are enough to handle, you mentioned this mental health thing. And unfortunately, it seems to me there's, there's more focus, not that there shouldn't be focus, on kids leaving their families and going off to college and being by themselves and how there are some catastrophic consequences in many of those kinds of settings, including death by suicide. But in the K through 12 thing, even when there is a support network at home, we've read about what you talk about, is all the mental health implications. Is there an infrastructure for that in place for these not kids, really. or is every family for itself, essentially? It's not, there isn't really an infrastructure. I mean, schools aren't set up to be mental health agencies. They aren't even really set up to do guidance effectively. You know, we think of guidance counselors as providing support to kids who have kind of mental health needs, but we've got ratios that are typically 1 to 300, 1 to 400, or 500. <laughs> Uh, you know, some schools are using some of their ARP money that's come down to, as is as the case in Boston, to hire more social workers and psychologists, which is a good thing. But, you know, for the most part, given the rise in mental health needs, it's sort of a Band-Aid on a, on a very significant problem that is not only sort of agonizing for individual kids and families, but it's become highly disruptive in schools. Yeah. The number one problem that I hear about from superintendents around the country that I talk to in my work is we've got all kinds of disciplinary and behavioral problems, actually not just confined to students, but often including parents coming into schools and being highly disruptive, that um, that we're just not prepared to cope with. We don't have the resources to cope with them. And uh, un- unless, we, uh, unless we find some ways and means of dealing uh, with these problems before they get to the classroom door, um, we're, we're in for some very difficult uh, times within school buildings for all children, especially for the ones who are suffering from that and mental health consequences. We're talking to our education expert, uh, Paul Revel. I'm wondering, Paul, if you think that <clears throat> this dispute out in Chicago, basically the teachers union out there voted uh, on Tuesday to um, stop reporting to school and parents are scrambling to find places to go. And the teachers union says that the system is bungling its response. And um, there's a record setting coronavirus surge in the city. The mayor, Lori Lightfoot disagrees, says that the classrooms are safe, but is this, you think this is something that's going to start happening all around the country, especially in big urban school systems? Well, it's reflective of the tension that, that we talked about at, at the beginning of the segment, which is, you know, naturally, teachers unions are concerned about protecting their members. They're in business to um, to support the work of their members and to support their members in the field. And there are legitimate concerns about the safety and well-being of teachers in schools. Um, you know, Chicago is an environment where there's been a long history of very acrimonious labor management relations in education uh, that have spilled over on a number of issues. And so, you know, at the extreme, I think we're going to see some cases like this where unions just... Uh, 
I mean, if you follow the rhetoric of the unions here in Massachusetts, it's not far off what we're hearing from folks in Chicago. It, they, the action, they haven't taken the actions uh, that have been taken in Chicago because it's not a single unified district here. But I think well, you're well, going to well, see... Wait, wait, wait. But my understanding is the Mass Teachers Association were complaining over the weekend. Correct me if I'm wrong. They weren't talking about not... They wanted a one-day delay so that the tests that were late in coming could be administered to the teachers, the other staff... And the kids, that's all they were looking for was a 24-hour pushback, right? Yeah, well, I think in, ter- in, the, in the practical immediate demand, and the demand has changed over the last few days, but in the rhetoric, I mean, they're, in, you know, they're, they're accusing the, the, the governor and the commissioner of lying or of bad faith. And, uh, you know, they're, they're making all kinds of inferences about tests and uh, oh, the expired <clears throat> tests. Well, but there were, excuse me, after they no, denied no, there, that there, there were, were, there were expired issues. tests. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm just saying it, it, it's quickly moved where it doesn't have to, in my view, Jim, to an adversarial kind of accusational discourse back and forth rather than to a joint problem solving situation. I mean, obviously, the state wants to bring, you know, high quality tests as quickly as possible to as many schools as possible so they can put the policies in place. And obviously, the union has a legitimate point of view in saying you know, this is maybe going too fast. And in Chicago, they said it's going way too fast and we're not going to come into school. But, you know, to answer Marjorie's question, I think we'll see more of this, um, you know, depending on when this all peaks. Now, last year, it peaked January 15th. And, uh, you know, I, the predictions are, are variable as far as I've been able to see between January 15th and February 1st, something expecting a peak. And there was a very sudden um, drop in cases after that last year. Now, whether this follows that same pattern, who knows? But, the, you know, this could all be alleviated dramatically in the not too distant future. Uh, on the other hand, it could continue. We just don't know what to expect here. And that's part of the problem and the uncertainty that, uh, you know, is affecting educators, is affecting families, is affecting children. So we learned, Paul uh, Revel, that UMass wants everyone to get uh, COVID-19 boosters, students, staff right across the, the whole big campus. Is this something that's another beginning of a trend or is this already happening or where are we with colleges and this kind of thing? No, I think it's moving in a trend. I mean, they're not, they weren't the only ones at the time they did it to do it. We just got notice recently from Harvard that we're all expected to have um, uh, boosters. I mean, the definition of being fully vaccinated is going to include two shots and a booster and you have to have that done by January 31st. Um, So I think this is, um, you know, this is going to become the new norm. Um, that that to be fully vaccinated, you have to have, uh, uh, you know, the two original shots plus a booster. And and colleges, you know, having had that this highly disruptive year last year uh, with all the accompanying issues in terms of of student achievement and in terms of people's mental health, um, uh, you know, are are trying as best they can to um, to head off uh, similar problems as we get into this situation. I mean, some schools uh, are already having students come back. I heard of one school yesterday where there was Northwestern, I think, having students come back. Um, they need to be in person on campus, but they're doing the classes remotely. Yeah. You know, we can't, we can't go back to the Harvard campus till January 24th, as it stands right now. Um, you know, and I think this is a wise measure that, they, you know, the universities are saying this is this is spreading very rapidly and uh, and we've got to take some immediate action to head off a crisis down the road. But I think they're all hoping to come back to in-person education uh, quickly and in most cases by the end of the month. 
the same time that the schools were open. I mean, K through 12, it's sort of an odd juxtaposition. You know, speaking of trends and speaking of Harvard, uh, we know, I, I was of the opinion that when the University of California system, which is huge, opted out of the standardized <clears throat> test, you got to take the SATs or whatever those others are called, the ACTs, is that what they are? Whatever they yeah, are. I think so. uh, that that was the end of the standardized test as an admission requirement. But it seems to me as an outsider that Harvard now saying uh, that, what is it, optional, I believe, through 2026 at least, is that the final nail in the coffin of standardized testing? Well, I think it's, for it's certainly certainly pushing things in that direction. I think there's 80 percent or so of the colleges now have a test optional um, uh, feature in terms of their admissions process. You could submit it or not, or and, and so the trend is clearly moving in that direction. And uh, I think you know universities have had, had doubts about the efficacy of those tests or the predictive power of the test. I think the fact that uh, folks are going to court with lawsuits like the one that was filed against Harvard and using test scores as uh, part of the evidence that's presented on unfair admissions practices when they're trying to diversify the student body, all of this has contributed to an environment. And then plus the the fact that schools really had no choice but to um, uh, to eliminate that the testing requirement during uh, this COVID period. And so they got in the habit of doing admissions and found they could do it uh, pretty effectively without using the test scores. All of this contributes, I think, to an environment where we're, um, you know, the, the, uh, the use of standardized tests as an important admissions criterion uh, is going to be a thing of the past before long. So when you say that they found admissions directors have found that they can effectively do their jobs without these standardized tests, how do they do a comparison. I mean, it's sort of analogous to the fight Marjorie and I've been having for years. Well, actually, your part is too about yeah. MCAS. How do you compare a kid from one school to another school? How do you compare two applicants to Harvard or BC or or such and you know uh, Salem State uh, when you don't have the standardized test? And by the way, I'm not in favor of them. I'm not advocating for it. But what does that admissions director do to compare those two candidates before he or she decides who is the best fit for their school? Well, I mean, we all have we all have uh, quite uh, elaborate admissions processes, and uh, you know, they many of the schools do interviews. They all ask you to submit evidence um, that you think makes the case that you have the um, you know the essential skills and knowledge to be effective in their school. They ask you to do essays. They gather recommendations. Our interviews. I'm sorry. Our interviews. I, I am a huge believer that that should be the most important issue is meeting someone and getting a sense of them. Are interviews the norm or are they not? Well, it's difficult. I mean, in institutions like the Ivy League institutions, which are overwhelmed with applications given the size of their admissions office, it's hard to do that. Some of the schools use alums to uh, do oh, those. Yeah. Yeah. people, that's right, that's right. And, and, and send them in. Now with remote technology, it's becoming um, you know somewhat easier to, to think about doing it. Uh, we do. Uh, I'm, I'm about to embark on an admissions meeting after this uh, interview in which we're, you know, we're planning a simulation that we're going to do on Zoom with students uh, who are coming in and to see how they work in groups and, and make a judgment about that. God, that and would it, give me hives if I was a student applicant. But go ahead. Well, you wouldn't have made it without the SATs to college from what you've told me. Well, so actually, you shouldn't be I'm, so happy. By the way, it, about... is, it is true. Standardized <laughs> tests were my strength That's right. and not my, uh, the rest of my uh, well, Jim's resume. How, how would you perform, Jim, in a group that had a collaborative project to solve? Very, poor, <laughs> very poorly. 
<laughs> I'm not a very collaborative <laughs> kind you know, of guy. As, uh, I assume you know, that's your intimation. Well, but that's I, I just know you'd have strong opinions on how it He was. <laughs> that's right. I have to salute to Jim every morning, Paul. Yeah. You know, going to that, really. We but, admire your strength. Oh, my God. <laughs> so but many I just, people. I just want to ask you one thing, though. I have heard this, and this is just anecdotally, so maybe it's not correct, but that certain schools have track records with certain colleges that they may have done very well getting kids, say, into Brown University, or they may have well... My high very- school, Central High School in Philly, which was the one test school, we got a disproportionate number of kids into Penn, which is right. where I went. Where and the, I went. and the, if, if you're in a high school, say, particularly if you're like in a, in a maybe a, a poor urban high school, that, that if you do uh, apply to those schools where kids have gotten in before, that's a, that's a good route to go. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is true, but it's not just, I mean... What it seems to apply is a kind of cronyism, and certainly in some cases that's true. That or that long- they know that this school is legit yeah, and that the I, recommendations... So, so I, I guess that's what I was getting at. It's the, yeah. real, the real responsibility of, of an admissions office is to bring in a class of people that will work well together and be successful, each, in, each individual, in you know traversing the four years of college and making the most of it and contributing to a viable community and graduating and so they do have ways of um, you know testing this process i mean over time they're going to be able to look at how did we do in terms of students persistence to graduation when we used to use standardized tests versus when we didn't use them and i think the same thing pertains to your question if there are schools, you know, it's hard to make comparative judgments between schools. That was the purpose of standardized testing right. in the first place. But if we have a history of working with X school, whether it's a, um, you know, a, 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 an urban school with a high concentration of economically disadvantaged kids or an elite private school, but the when the staff tells us that they think this is a good person and this person is ready to do our kind yeah. of work. We know we can trust them because we've seen it in the past. We're likely to go back there and uh, and and rely on the advice from that same person again. So uh, it's true. It, I mean, relationships matter. If I'm late for that simulation, by the way, just start without me and I'll get there as soon as I can. Okay? I could be even more disruptive. You know, <laughs> Paul, good to see you. Thank Thanks. you very much, Paul Revel. Good to Paul see is, both of you. Good to see you, too. Paul Revel is the former Secretary of Education and a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Lynn Sachs, is Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Coming up, a year out from January 6th, there is no doubt that radical extremism is on the rise here in the United States. So what options do families have when a loved one falls prey to hate groups? Our next guest says it happens more often than you'd expect, and she's devoted her career to creating solutions, and I can't wait to talk to her. Miriam Churchill is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And the fear of losing a loved one to violent extremism, not the fear that they might be killed by an extremist, but that they might join them, has never felt particularly front of mind here in the U.S. But the reality, as we've seen over the past few years, is that it is happening 
and it's happening with growing frequency. Our next guest, Miriam Churchill, is the executive director of Parents for Peace. It's a non-government, non-profit organization comprised of social workers, therapists, and actually reformed extremists. Their aim is to help families treat what Churchill describes as a drug of choice, hate, bigotry, radical extremism, whether it's for ISIS or the Wolverine Watchmen, who are the people who tried to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Widmer a couple of years ago. Miriam Churchill, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Good to meet you. To meet you, too. Thank you so much for having me uh, at your show. Our yeah, pleasure. I'm thrilled to talk to you because I think uh, uh, so many of us, millions of Americans probably, they may not be worried about someone being you know, a, a killer, but they're very worried about this this extremism that they're seeing among people they've known all their lives. So let's start with um, how how this happens to people, this going down this rabbit hole Jim spoke about. Well, thank you for asking. And, uh, you know, when I started working with Pants for Peace, you know, I'm a therapist and uh, and I worked with population that are in sex trafficking and human trafficking. And I thought I knew a lot about human behavior uh, until I started working with extremism. Um, and so um, I was extremely curious, especially uh, after Charlie Hebdo attack. I was actually in Paris. Um, and and I realized like why young people who have good family would you know uh, carry an attack. Why? What is it? And probably like most of people, I was just scared and angry. So it took me really uh, to join Pants for Peace and meet the founder, uh, Mr. Bledsoe whose son, a very, very good family from Memphis, you know, uh, business owner, uh, invested on his son and his education, uh, you know, a uh, very proud uh, African-American, you know, who really made it well when his son, you know, converted to Islam, got groomed, trafficked by the wrong crowd, was sent to Yemen, came back and shot two people. And today he's serving several life sentences. So, of course, it's a puzzle. Why good kids from good family end up turning against us or getting into this rabbit hole? And I know that January 6 have really startled all of us, you know, and so certainly in, you know, TV, the visual of it, you know, uh, everybody would kind of be stunned about this. The fact is this is a lot more common than we think, even though we don't have the visual like the January 6th. But are we right when we describe this, describing your position as that this is a form of addiction? Is that accurate? And if it is, describe what you mean to us, please. Yes, absolutely. The first time that, you know, I spoke to one of the mother from Parents for Peace, uh, whose son was using drugs and was struggling with addiction, when he converted to Islamism, he stopped cold turkey. And I just couldn't, you know, believe that because many people that know about the struggle with opioid, you just don't stop overnight. Uh, and then I could see that some people, you know, uh, that, that the extremism, the, uh, the ideology was really being used as like a drug, like almost replacing one drug transferred wanted right exactly yeah. yeah yes and also uh that was confirmed to me with my colleague chris buckley who's a former clan member and you know and he's a veteran from afghanistan and together we do interventions you know i work with different 
part of our team who are former KKK members, former Al-Qaeda sympathizer, and even survivors of the Sikh temple shooting. And so he explained to me that when he came back from, you know, combat with PTSD, with, you know, struggle, he got into drugs and the next step was to get to the clan. And for him, he felt the, you know, the, the numbing, the PTSD, the, the, the wound, the pain was very similar. The rash he got from hate and from drug were very similar. You know, we were talking, I think it was the Lindia Downey, I, I believe it was, from the Pine Street Inn a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about a different kind of addiction and how people had to want to get out of it. To, to get out of it. You can't sort of dictate to someone who is suffering from addiction that uh, it's the right thing to do, so just do it. Is it the same with this kind of addiction? Does someone who's involved in this kind of extremism need to want to free themselves from this to be able to be freed by your model, which we'll talk about in a minute, or, or, or not? Well, so it's a little complicated. Like someone in addiction, you really need to be at a place to know that you have a problem. Because mm-hmm. usually, I mean, look, I'm just going to give like a random example. When we go to the dentist and we get numb, we all are happy to be numb because we don't want to feel the pain. Who wants to feel the pain? And so in a way, we don't think about extremism as a coping mechanism. But it is mm-hmm. one, you know, the same one people will reach out to booze or to drug because it's a shortcut way to not feel or to deal with underlying issue. Extremism is the same, is the same way. It gives you, it really numbs your pain. And by the way, you will find out that across all ideology, whether it's Islamist or white supremacy or a left wing, radical left wing, you know, are people really you know, uh, scapegoat Jews, because when you do that, you don't have to take responsibility for your pain of what you are dealing with. And that's why scapegoats become very, you know, useful in in that, you know, in that addiction. Uh, And it's really pushes you away from taking responsibility and dealing with the underlying issue that gets you to extremism. So, um, yes, extremism is a really powerful coping mechanism and a drug of choice. We're talking with Miriam Churchill. She's executive director of Parents for Peace, and she works for people uh, and, and, and families that have been affected by extremism. You know, uh, it, apparently there has been a huge uptick in calls to a group like yours. By the way, you, you do your services for free. Is that correct? That's right. We rely on donations, you know, small yeah. donations. You know, we are a small team, uh, you know, uh, it's small donations such as like Twitter, for instance, and the Blue Cross Blue Shield from Massachusetts, which I'm very grateful to. Uh, and uh, some some small donors support our work. And the reason why we do it for free, uh, even though we can definitely use a lot of help to kind of be able to spread out, you know, uh, to reach out more families, is because um, we want to make sure that people can afford this help. You know, yeah. our, our our really goal is to be able to, uh, provide help for everyone. So it, it, what, I, what I was mentioning is that, that there's been a big uptick in, in outreach to groups like yours in the pandemic and uh, since the 2020 election. Uh, and you talk about a, or a woman in her 30s whose brother uh, went down this, this violent route. Uh, tell us why there's been this expansion and maybe tell us a little bit what happened to this woman you uh, talked to and her family. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, so this is what we're talking is like the brother is a veteran, you know, and he never had, he never dealt with PTSD, you know, returning from combat. And so, uh, so of course, uh, the, uh, you know, after the, the election, I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the president at the time was really providing a platform for the people that were suffering and for the, for the pain. And they could hear that, you know, and by the way, one way of we are treating people is to address the underlying issue. So they are not using anything outside, you know, as, you know, as a coping mechanism, such as extremism, for instance. So this man is doing well today. The family have recovered. So it took a process of the whole family coming together. And mainly the way we worked, you know, because the person we are talking about was more a liberal sister and the the brother was more conservative and the divide in the family have created more problems. So we had to come really to bring the family together to respect each other's uh, differences so we can address why the brother was groomed into extremism. But is that a different model for addressing this kind of addiction, to use your term, than any other kind of addiction that you would try to counsel people out of? So, um, you, you know, uh, for, even for drug addiction, there's many different kind of treatment and approach, and some people disagree. But I would say that, you know, the similarity is that people are truly hooked in hate. They are hooked like a drug. And so, uh, and they are hooked because it provides them a way of coping, a way of not feeling pain. So this is very similar. And, and the pathway of recovery is to really kind of address the root issue. Let me give you just an example. Um, you know, so um, before even January 6th, when it was uh, after Charlottesville, you know, uh, March, we had a family from the South, you know, and what we would t- talk about the clip, you know, the typical cliche of Trump supporter, you know, that had a son that got into neo-Nazi groups. And, uh, and the family really hesitated calling us, you know, because they thought that we were this kind of liberal, that we were going to indoctrinate them into becoming, you know, more liberal. And so we had to really work hard to convince them that this is not a political issue. And this is really a problem that has an underlying problem that we need to address. So, um, so what ended up happening is that when we worked together, when we start understanding about what was really happening to this son that got him into a hate group, we were able to provide the right help and the recovery. So now today the son is doing much, you know, much better. So um, what is that? What is that right help that can lead to recovery? Obviously, it's different in every case, but there's an overall uh, strategy. What is that? Yes. So we started developing our own, you know, methodology because we couldn't find anything out there, you know, and, and quickly we realized that it really takes some psychological and emotional work, you know, because obviously, you know, if people are using drugs to numb a pain, there is what is, what is it? What is the trauma? 
what is the identity crisis what is the what is the invisible wound that we are not seeing and with extremism is often the case what that means here it takes so we have a very uh, sophisticated protocol where we collect uh, you know information about the family the person themselves because when people are groomed into extremism the grooming is tailored, so the recovery has to be tailored. So as we understand the person and the family, it's really like a systemic, you know, uh, work. We start kind of, uh, you know, finding out about what is the underlying issue? What is what happened? What is the trauma? And then we start working around that trauma and building those bridges in order to address what, where is the inflammation, just like addiction, you know, in order to be able to really tend to what wasn't addressed. You know, I was speaking about Chris Buckley, who was a veteran. You know, when he started addressing the wound, the trauma, he was able to get clean and recover, you know, because, because we were able to work on, on, uh, on what led him to the, you know, to the clan. We're talking to Miriam Churchill, and by the way, we should give it the website. It's parents, the number four piece dot org. If you want more information or help, the one difference, as you and Marjorie were speaking, Miriam, that occurred to me, and please disabuse me of this belief, is the steeper hill. It seems to me that you have to climb. That in other addiction situations, if you're dealing, let's talk about opioid addiction, which you're dealing with, that person is not surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the general population who have a drug addiction, but maybe it's a little less intense. We're in a society where uh, tens of millions of people are addicted to extremism. And uh, I'm using the word addicted loosely, but the difference between them and the people you're treating is the people you're treating have acted upon the addiction the people surrounding them in society are not acting upon it. They're just believing it intensely. So in that kind of environment, it seems to me your job is made so much more difficult. Am I, am I right or am I misreading yes, uh, the environment? No, absolutely. And I think that what I am worried about is that this issue is underreported. I think, you know, we are here to talk about January 6th. And it's true. It was a big deal and it was a big problem. What I worry about is what is not reported. And, and so what we are dealing right now is family, families that are regular families. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they are doctors, they are lawyers, they are journalists, they are professors. And so they have sent their kids to private school, good school, give to their children everything that need, need, they needed and they are groomed into all kind of extremism. And our, our work is almost impossible because this is not out there. We talk about the January 6th, and that was a big deal. But what is a big deal right now is that we are seeing a large number of nice liberal family in the Boston area and the suburb all over the United States of those, you know, of kids that are being groomed into white supremacy, neo-Nazi group, Ottomwaffen, Islamist, hard left wing, and and actually because of that, we started we launched a peer support group of family members. So, so with those families that you just described, 
Is there in those families as well an underlying trauma that this person experienced or are they just spending six hours a day online getting uh-huh. radicalized there? There's a combination. Let me give you just a very, uh, a very, uh, you know, a quick example here, uh, trying to cover the, uh, you know, the confidentiality. So in, in the West Coast, I'm working with a mom, you know, and very liberal, has spent her whole life in social justice and doing the best she could for the people that needed help. And, you know, and she has a son that became, you know, a neo-Nazi. So she sent her son to, she's not Jewish, but she sent her son into a progressive uh, uh, private uh, Jewish school to teach him all kind of values. And so what happened? What happened here? So as I've been working with this, this mother, she said, look, I did everything right here. I did everything right. And as we start kind of digging into the history, the mom admitted to us, she said, look, my son is a white male privilege. He wasn't really on top of my, of, of my priorities. So I guess that I thought that everybody else needed the help. And she neglected her son who had really psychological and emotional issues. So he did get the attention. Uh, you know, so I guess that trauma can look in so many different ways. And this example, we have so many of those, except we don't talk about them. You know, uh, Jim gave uh, your website before. We'll give it again. Uh, you can give it to us before again you leave. But if there are people who have family members right now who are virulent anti-vaxxers that are, you know, believing that the, the vaccination is going to, you know, chip in from Bill Gates or whatever, or that they are believing the lie about the about the um, the election. Um, what can they do? Is there some place they can look? I mean, you can't deal with everybody. You're a small group. Is there literature that will help them or a place that they can go to try to figure out how to cope with this? So uh, this is like a whole new section and we deal with them. We deal with yeah. them because unfortunately uh, there is not that many examples, you know, out there. They're yeah. not. So we do deal with them. You know, in the past, we used to have parents calling about their kids as young as 11 years old to late twenties. Now we have young adults calling about their parents as old as in their late seventies because they are in QAnon or an anti-vaxxer. Oh, gosh. So this is, this is, this is a serious serious public health crisis. Give us the website one more time, please, Miriam. So the website is parentsnumber4peace.org. And also, if there is anyone that you worry about that is struggling with extremism, please call our helpline, which is 1-844-4973-223. It's really important that people get help, uh, you know, because people really don't know what to do. Miriam, Thank good you. to meet you. Thanks Thank so you much so for much time. for joining us. It. Thank you very much. Thank you. Marion Churchill is a psychotherapist and the executive director of Parents for Peace, a non-government public health nonprofit that helps families and communities address and treat the radicalization of loved ones. And incredibly enough, they do it for free. If you want more information, visit Parents for, that's the number four, F-O-U-R, parentsforpeace.org. Coming up. Assistant Speaker of the House of Representatives, Massachusetts' own Congresswoman Catherine Clark. She's up with us next to talk about the anniversary of January 6th. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And our next guest was at the Capitol one year ago today. Assistant Speaker of the House Catherine Clark represents Massachusetts 5th Congressional District. We spoke to her earlier today just as the president was about to give his remarks. Catherine Clark, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Oh, it's good to be with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Congresswoman Clark. So it's a year later. What are you thinking, feeling today? You know, it is emotional to be back in the Capitol today. Um, and as we mark this one-year anniversary since a deadly assault uh, was not only waged on this building, but on our very democracy, it really confirms my belief that all of us have a role to play now that the fragility of our democracy has been exposed in making sure that we do everything in our power to strengthen it and not let anyone rewrite or whitewash the gravity of what took place a year ago today. Before we talk about how one accomplishes that in this incredibly divided country and Congress, I know you arrived at Capitol Hill in the middle of all this mess a year ago today. Is there one moment from last year, Congresswoman, that stays with you and you just can't shake? There are several, but I think it was as I approached the Capitol, um, seeing flags of white supremacy, uh, Trump flags up at the top of the steps and just hearing a roar. I've, I've seen probably hundreds of protests around the Capitol, and this was a different beast. This was the roar of anger, of uh, a roar of almost war, I would describe it. And it really was that feeling that not believing my own eyes mm. and thinking this could not be happening in our country. Yet it did. And even today, we have a Republican Party that continues to peddle this lie about our elections, which were the safest and most secure elections in our country's history, and to undermine all efforts to protect that right to vote, which is where our freedoms flow from. So, you know, the sights and sounds of January 6th will always stay with me. But what is most discouraging today is that this has become a partisan divide instead of coming together around our Constitution and our very democracy. Well, Congressman Clark, you, you uh, spoke in uh, about January 6th and the sensations you felt later that day. Uh, because remember, at the, at the beginning, there was a lot of uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy and others uh, said this was the fault of, of President Trump. You called it white hot rage uh, uh, when so many of your fellow Congress people chose to side with President Trump's big lie. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, you know, I am I am not a person that is prone to uh, prolonged anger. Um, you sound very calm a, and collected, I Congresswoman. Have a, <laughs> I have a very long fuse, but I have to tell you, um, after seeing the death and destruction, literally walking through blood and broken glass to go and vote 
to certify our federal election, the election of our president, um, and to watch Republicans um, not do that and to have them say that, well, they feared a primary. A primary? All of us just have a, a moment in our country's history and government in which we serve. And when we have an attack on this citadel of democracy, and you, your first concern is to think about a primary and your own elected office, it was so enraging that people were putting those smaller political individual concerns over our Constitution. Um, and, uh, you know, we already knew by the time we were voting um, that people had been seriously injured and killed. And I just couldn't imagine how my colleagues could not take this moment to rise up above whatever policy disagreements we have and vote for our Constitution, vote for the Electoral College and the will of the American people. And that has been difficult to this day um, to wrestle with that decision made by so many of my colleagues who I know um, understand and believe that Joe Biden was rightfully elected by the American people. Well, you know, let's stay on this. We're talking to Catherine Clark, Congresswoman Clark from Massachusetts, fourth-ranking member of the House of Representatives leadership. I was looking at an Axios poll this morning. 69% of the people who voted for Donald Trump say that uh, Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. That's 50 million people who, but who are following their leaders. And l- let's talk about the leaders. Your colleagues, your GOP colleagues, other than the true lunatics, the gosars of the world, who probably should be committed, in my opinion. Uh, uh, Does the average Republican believe any of this crap? Or are they just towing the line, scared of Donald Trump, worried about being primary? Do they believe this? Sadly, I I think it's the latter. Mm -hmm. I think they don't believe it, but have made a political calculation that it is easier to go along undermine the right to vote, undermine the pillars of our democracy, undermine our Constitution, than it is to stand up for what's right. Uh, You know, I I look at uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who has uh, a great cost to her politically, stood up for what she believes is right. Liz Cheney and I do not agree on just about any policy vote um, that we have taken in Congress. I bet our voting records are in opposition almost exclusively. But, you know, why aren't there more that can find their way? Not to saying we believe in the Democrats and their vision, but that we believe in our country And I don't know who's worse, those like Paul Gosar, who um, are just, you know, uh, racist. Um, They are, uh, they will use violence to, as entertainment. Uh, They are, you know, as you said, have appeared to have lost their minds. Or those who continue to try and work across the aisle, yet live and promote this big lie 
Um, I, I don't know who is more of a danger to our democracy at this point, because 68% of Republicans who believe the election was stolen believe it because that is yeah. the lie that politicians and media influencers keep spreading. You know, Catherine Clark, you said a minute ago, when will they stand up for what's right? Are you convinced that uh, the Attorney General of the United States stood up for what was right yesterday? While he promised that the investigation of January 6th would continue and that no one would escape uh, uh, responsibility from the top to the bottom, as you know, uh, 700 rank-and-filers have been charged, a couple of hundred of them sentenced, not one leader of this thing. Uh, we don't know if there's an investigation of the president's involvement in this. A lot of people think that he violated anti-sedition laws, that he aided and abetted, that at minimum he attempted to have an election overthrown by that infamous call to the Georgia secretary of state. Are you – I saw one of your colleagues on uh, – a Democratic colleague on CNN the other day. I think his name is pronounced Galagos. Please correct me if I'm mispronouncing uh, his name. Excoriating uh, the weakness of the Democratic attorney general of the United States – are you comfortable with how these investigations are proceeding? Well, I can tell you that I appreciated what I heard from the attorney general yesterday, that we will have accountability. And, you know, um, we will hear from the president today. And that is why also the work on the January 6th committee is so vital. Yeah. And um, it is why we have to memorialize the truth. And listen, we have failed to do this in the course of our history, around the history of slavery, colonialism, Native American genocide. And if we are going to be that nation that lives up to those ideals that we talk about, that we embrace, that we hold out, we have to be honest about our past and injustices, and we have to restore faith in government. And we do that by seeking the truth wherever it may lead us and accountability for everyone, whether they are um, uh, an insurgent who came here to do harm to the Capitol Police and to members of Congress, or whether they are a former president of the United States. That's how we protect um, our democracy, and it's that fundamentally important. And that's why it is so um, dire, the situation that we have in our current GOP, where we have had, you know, uh, only two members have joined us in holding Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon in contempt. Everyone should be able to say, let's get to the truth. Let's make sure that we know exactly what happened and who was responsible. We're talking with Congresswoman Catherine Clark. Congresswoman, yet there is a sense, I think, from, from what I read, what I, uh, uh, you know, just the, 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 the mood about if you are not on the bandwagon with the big lie, that the Democrats may not be up to this task, that there's not an understanding of how perilous a situation is, that if you can rig the vote, and, and Republicans have been very aggressive in the grassroots area, uh, going after low-level people in elections in, in states across the country where they could flip the vote, actually, actually steal the election, that there's not enough of a sense of the dire 
perilous state we're in, and the Democrats have not been strong enough in emphasizing that. Well, I, I think the fault here does not lie with the Democrats. It lies with those who are continuing to fuel this fire and spread and empower the lies about our elections. And we've seen, what, over 400 bills be filed in state legislatures trying to restrict and suppress the vote. And the House passed uh the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the For the People Act months ago. And what we cannot do is let a rule of of Congress, a rule of the Senate, uh, continue to obstruct moving forward on this legislation. The Constitution is clear when we use a supermajority. It is laid out, and the filibuster in its current form is being used in a way that is undermining our very democracy. So, yes, we have to make sure that we are open to that reform, and I know that the Senate, the Democrats in the Senate, are, are working day and night to, to change that rule so that we can get the voting rights reform that we need. Do you have any reason to I – mean, Chuck Schumer, who obviously is the Democratic leader in the Senate, has said there will be a debate and a vote to follow on the voting rights bills on January 17th. And, of course, the key question for all of us lay people is does he have the votes, meaning does he have the votes of a Senator Cinema or a Senator Manchin to do what you're suggesting needs to be done to protect voting rights? Do you have any insight as to where that is going, or is it there are going to be 48 Democratic votes to get, if there is a vote, to get rid of uh, or at least do a carve-out of the filibuster and everything uh, comes up short? Do you, do you have any insight? Uh, you know, I, I can tell you this. I know that conversations are ongoing um, and negotiations and that people are appealing to Joe Manchin, who, when he was secretary of state, when he was governor of West Virginia, he, he moved forward on voting rights protections. And we know this is an issue he believes in. And what we all have to come to terms with is that we are at a crossroads for our country and our country's history. And all the things that I know I grew up assuming that our democracy would always be a bright light for the world, that it would always be here. We cannot make those assumptions. A year ago, it was shown to us how fragile our situation is. And we have seen this voter suppression effort, and it is directly tied to what happened on January 6th. And so we have to make sure that everyone in the Democrats, and if 10 Republicans are not going to join us to overcome the filibuster, if 10 Republicans cannot say, um, I am going to vote for our Constitution and our democracy, then we have to be the ones to step up in a unified way and, and make the changes necessary. I would eliminate the filibuster today, um, but we will do whatever we can to get voting rights legislation through.
You know, uh, when you go home at night and you're – where did you move? To Revere? Is that where you're living now? I know you moved. Is that where you – Okay. Revere. Okay. When you go home – let me read you. We've done this a ton of times today. The last paragraph from this really powerful op-ed in the New York Times from Jimmy Carter. Our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss without immediate action. We're at genuine risk, genuine risk of civil conflict, losing our precious democracy. Americans must set aside differences and work together before it's too late, even if – the Democrats get their act together in the Senate, Manchin and Cinema get on board, and voting rights protection is passed in those two pieces of legislation. Do you at night, can you envision a scenario in which Americans do set aside their differences and work together? I, I, I have to, We talk about it almost every day on the radio. I don't see any break in that. There's a, that Axios poll I mentioned to you, almost the exact same number of people believe that uh, uh, Joe Biden was not legitimately elected today as believed that a year ago and other indicators like violence, willingness to participate in violence have gone up. Do you do you see a path to that moment where differences are bridged, Catherine Clark? I do see a path, and I think it's a arduous one, and I think it's going to be difficult. But I believe that our country and our democracy is worth fighting for. And that we have to do not only protect that right to vote, which is sort of, it's the source of our freedom and liberty. It is the source of making sure that we do fight against um, fascism, that we do fight against white supremacy by enabling the people's vote. But we also have to combat misinformation on many other levels, whether is it about the election, whether it is about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Um, That is, this is a crisis for us. Um, And we have to look at uh, social media and how information is spread. And we have to hold those who purposefully are plotting against our country accountable. Um, But it's not an easy path back. Um, But there is... um, uh, you know, it is one that we have to to do, and all of us have a role in this. And we have to make sure that we are doing everything within our own spheres to be clear about um, about how we how we move forward as a country. And that does not mean we agree on tax structure or health care or so many other things in this country, but that we still come together around those democratic principles. And uh, walking today into the Capitol, which is a moving experience, um, I I passed by a, a statue of Frederick Douglass, and it said on the side, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And we are in a struggle for our democracy, but it's one worth fighting. Well, we sure as hell hope you're right. Catherine Clark, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you both. Happy New Year. And to you. You too. Congresswoman and Assistant Speaker of the House, Catherine Clark, represents Massachusetts' 5th Congressional District. And we thank the Assistant Speaker and the Congresswoman very much for her time. Up next, we're turning the reflections back over to you. Give us a call, 877-301-8970. Where are you a year from January 6th? 
What are your thoughts about our country going forward? You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And by the way, exactly an hour ago, we asked uh, Andrew Cabral who she thought Governor Baker should pick to be the interim replacement for Rachel Rollins, who resigned yesterday as Suffolk DA. She'll be sworn in Monday as the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. And number one on her list was the head of the Sex Offender Registry Board, Kevin Hayden. Well, an hour later, Kevin Hayden has been picked by the governor to be the interim uh, uh, DA for uh, Suffolk County, Andrea Cabral gets action. In any case, uh, we're ending today's show by returning to the conversation that started it, that's on everybody's mind, a year out from the January 6th insurrection. If you missed it, here's a little bit more of President Biden's address to the nation this morning. So now let's step up, write the next chapter in American history, where January 6th marks not the end of democracy, but the beginning of a renaissance of liberty and fair play. I did not seek this fight brought to this capital one year ago today. But I will not shrink from it either. I will stand in this breach. I will defend this nation. And I will allow no one to place a dagger at the throat of democracy. We will make sure the will of the people is heard, that the ballot prevails, not violence, that authority in this nation will always be peacefully transferred. So we want to know, in uh, reaction to what the president had to say, in reaction to what the attorney general had to say yesterday, Merrick Garland, and just your feelings in general, uh, how will democracy survive uh, going forward? 877-301-8970. Is there the sense of urgency that is needed? Do you have confidence that Merrick Garland is going to hold everybody, no matter how, how high up the chain they are, responsible uh, if they were involved in the planning and implementation of this insurrection a year ago today. 877-301-8970. Catherine Clark just told us she thinks there is a route from here to there to lead us out of the wilderness. I have to say, respectfully, I'm not convinced. I surely hope she is right. But I uh, worry a lot. I think the consensus is that that was probably the strongest speech that we've maybe ever heard. Joe Biden give. He called out Donald Trump, not by name, but repeatedly as essentially a sore loser and somebody who spreads lies. And while we've heard that from a lot of people, we haven't heard it from his successor, which I think is a pretty major moment. Well, you know, she said something that really resonated with me that she said she always assumed growing up that the United States would be the bright light for the world. And um, I think that that's in question, obviously. And I always assumed uh, growing up that sooner or later, you know, we would do the right thing. And and I don't I don't think that anymore either. So it's pretty depressing how quickly things have changed. 877-301-8970. Let's start in Arlington with Jane. Jane, thank you very much for your call. Hello there. Hi there. Do I have to turn my phone down, my radio down? You do indeed. Thank you, Jane. Go ahead. Okay. Here's what I want to say. This year, I could not bring myself to speak to New Year because it's not a happy year. Uh, prospect is not for happiness. 
and uh, or anyway, I don't even know what it means in the light of today. And at the same time, I'm really tired of being negative and depressed, not being able to say even the word. So tonight I'm going out to Arlington's March. I think we need to take to the streets in, in three times as many numbers as we did for Black Lives Matter. I think it has to be constant. I wish it could get... You know, Jane, the connection is horrible. If you don't mind, we're going to put you on hold for a second because I want to hear what that vigil tonight that you're joining is all about. So we'll put you on hold, bad connection. As soon as we take a call, we'll try you one more time. So please don't go away. But that resonates with that, resonates with that me too, right? Do you what? want another year of negativity? I, mean, I don't <laughs> want another segment of negativity. I mean, it's really, really I know. hard. It it's hard really... to be humorous about January 6th, I guess. Well, there's, isn't there's, really no, a... there's no humor in it. 877-301-8970. We're catching up with your calls. We'll get to them in a uh, second. I, I feel somewhat heartened. I was not heartened at all by what Merrick Garland had to say yesterday. I was somewhat hardened, not that I see an actual immediate consequence of what Joe Biden had to say, but I'm among those who wanted the behavior of Donald Trump called out, not just by activists, but by the guy who has the same job he did. Peter, you're in Framingham. You're on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, but I watched the speech today. I stopped working to, to listen to what the president had to say, and I was very moved. And afterwards, I listened to some of the commentary quickly, ABC, NPR, CNN, mm-hmm. and I went to Fox. Oh. And I was devastated to see they had the weather playing. Um, and then I got even more devastated to think maybe they didn't air it. Because I have a lot of friends, good people, smart people, who just listen to Fox, and it just completes the divide. Well, you're singing yeah. Marjorie's tune, I should say. Uh, well, it's Peter. not alone anymore. It's, it's it's Fox, which is the biggest on TV, obviously. But I think Facebook um, is, and we all say, oh well, Facebook is fine. We can see pictures of our of our children, or you can, you know, get in touch with friends from high school. But I don't know. Is that worth the bad things we're doing? Obviously, the you know the horse is out of the barn. I don't know that you can put it back in, but um, it's Facebook, it's it's OAN, it's all these other Newsmax, all these other sources, uh, too. But Fox is pr- it is pretty bad. Remember years ago, Ted Koppel said that Fox News was a danger to America. That was early on. By uh, the way, that was early on. He was hey, prescient, I guess. Peter, before you leave, what what was it that moved you about what uh, Biden had to say? That he was really defending the nation and calling out Donald Trump, and it's. Nice, finally, to see somebody do that with such authority. Uh, but I'm afraid that people didn't hear it because people go to their own news networks or their own sources, as Marjorie said. And how do we reach across the divide? It's what you did in the previous segment. I'm driving and I listen to it. You know, I try desperately to reach across the divide, but I, I find people just too dug in. Well, by the way, you know who most desperately has tried to reach across the divide? The guy you're just talking about, Joe Biden, but took a totally different tack today. Peter, thank you for your first call. And again, as always, we hope you make another. 877-301-8970. And the problem is, even if it turns out uh, that Fox News did air it, I don't know if anybody does well, I know. Saw, I saw Kamala Harris on Fox News. Oh, so, so they probably did they something. Did. I, I, yeah. I mean, who does it move? Who does it convince? It's sort of... 
uh, it's it's not a choir that wants to be preached to, and I don't know how you crack those minds open. I mean, is well, it, they're all, you know, what was it, Kellyanne Conway, who we've been talking about in a while, what was the great line she used on, uh, she coined it on Meet the Press, actually, with Chuck Alternative, Alternative facts. facts. And I remember <laughs> Chuck going, what? But I'm, that's, <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the time, beginning with Donald Trump, of alternative facts. People don't even agree on the, the basic factual foundation mm-hmm. upon which we can have... Have to watch well late night debates. TV. Have to watch late night TV tonight. See if any of these guys can do something funny on uh, on January sixth. Oh, I'm sure they'll be doing a lot of fun <laughs> things. Pat at Nashburnham, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say, I, we need to have something like the good housekeeping seal of approval, uh, so <laughs> that people know what's true. Yeah. So if commission could be created through universities or whatever where you have wise and learned people who recognize the truth, vet media outlets, so that media um, licenses and permits are taken away from those who actively spread lies. Well, we have that kind of idea of what is true. Well, I have to say it makes me a little nervous. We used to have it, Jim. What did we used to have? The Fairness Doctrine. Yeah. Uh, we 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 did have the fairness, uh, which meant doctrine. that if 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 someone came on and said the sky was green, you'd have to have the next person to come on to say no, actually the sky is blue, and that was eliminated. Uh, and and shortly, but thereafter, that's different from what Pat's saying. Pat's saying you shouldn't be allowed to have speech if it turns out you are. Uh, essentially lying to the American people. I'm not, with all due respect, Pat, I'm not comfortable with that. I am comfortable with what Marjorie's talking. I mean, you know, Bill O'Reilly takes a lot of crap. Mm-hmm. We used to work with him, and uh, he was on our station in yep. the uh, old yep. days and had some experience with him. The thing that I actually admired about Bill O'Reilly is not mm-hmm. his loofah behavior, but other things, is he would always have the other side on. He would. And he may bludgeon them uh, to death. But he had people like, I mean, the infamous Barney Frank uh, uh, exchanges. I mean, the point is he was willing to take on and have the other side represented, even if he didn't treat them as respectfully well, as he might. That doesn't exist anymore. That's a far better solution, what you're talking about, yeah, than censoring people's speech. The other side was often not the best representative for the other side. I mean, remember the Hanley and Combs show with the late Alan Combs? I do. I mean, there you had, you know, Sean Hanley looking kind of like, you know, a handsome cowboy. And then you had Alan Combs, very smart guy, not exactly a a matinee idol, regularly getting pummeled by, by hand. Well, that's and- true, but they had somebody. There was a movie, uh, actually, we had the guy, it was called Out Fox. I can't right. believe I remember this. And it was a movie that did exactly what Marjorie did. It, 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 it analyzed the opposition guests that Fox had. Right. And it said exactly like Marjorie, it picked the least attractive right. uh, uh, people who'd be least appealing to the audience. Having said, by the way, the great moment that we don't have time to discuss today, speaking of the late Alan Combs, what? during the Democratic National Convention when it was in Boston in 2004, yeah. <laughs> Marjorie and I are obviously there for our work. Marjorie goes out, to, I don't know, to get a drink or something, whatever she does. That's right. And she comes back in and she is locked out. I can't get what back in. What a surprise. <laughs> She's locked out of uh, the garden, whatever it was called then. And who is she locked out with? Alan Combs. Alan Combs. And who appears but Triumph, the comic insult dog. <laughs> Who uh, out of nowhere? Who mocks Alan Combs? Says, "You know, oh look at Alan Combs! Can't because Combs yeah. is saying they can't get on a show. Yeah, and he's supposed to do a show and he's locked out. Yeah, that was it was. We're a not very ridiculing crowded... the dead. It was just a funny. No, he uh, was a very he was a very good journalist. But you know, the the, the good looking twenty uh, five uh, year old blonde. 
uh, in a very tight dress. It was always somehow a formal federal prosecutor. They all you never figure out how she had time to be a formal federal prosecutor. Those are the ones that were always on Bill O'Reilly's side, as I recall. They were all in their teens when they were prosecutors, <laughs> by the way. Scott, Scott South from Boston. South Boston. Welcome. Hi, Scott. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, you know, on, on one side of the issue, I do see a great amount of optimism for the strong words, the strong language, and actually, like, probably one of the better speeches that I've heard out of Biden. I think it's um, right up there. Uh, right up there. But while I'm optimistic about his tenor towards the issue, I can easily see Fox News or One American News Network, whatever propaganda tool getting their paws on it, twisting it, and then spinning it up. I mean, I have neighbors here in South Boston who it doesn't matter what Joe Biden says or doesn't say. They hate him. They hate his guts. It will be, it will be spun by conservative media, and then it just drives a wedge further into where we are. So I have this learned hopelessness that <laughs> oh, oh, Scott. There, there, there is no it, – it's just going to – continue to divide people it it's it's lip service to the greater issue and you know say what you want like democrats are smart but why do they lose so much i just i uh, talk about exasperation i am here i am there it is yeah Devastating. Well, you know, Scott, yeah, I'm sorry, Marjorie. Go ahead. I sometimes wonder if, if it, where we'd be if, if, if Bill Clinton, who needs this to say, had a lot of problems with women, but was a great talker. I mean, people say Barack Obama was a great talker. Bar- Barack Obama couldn't sell things. Remember, we went to that same convention, and you heard. Um, uh, Bill Clinton come out and well, it was not that same convention. No, actually, in fact, it? we were standing. We it was in Bill- New York. It was in New York. Yeah, don't Barack tell the story about me and Bill Clinton. I'm not going to tell you okay. the story, but, but well, that's a when, hard way to leave it. Barack Obama was brilliant at this the, that convention. Yeah, but Bill Clinton came out and explained better than Barack Obama. Several years later, how yes. important uh, what Barack Obama had done. He could he could get the the, the it was meat Obama's potatoes out there. Election, he did yeah. the same thing in Boston when he was coming to campaign for Martha Coakley when she was running against Scott Brown, and he came in 30 seconds and explained why you should vote for Martha Coakley. He was a great speaker, and some people didn't like him, but he had that good old Southern boy charm thing going on, um, and was a forceful speaker. I don't and, think it's about the other side. I think Trump is a once in a lifetime kind of uh, uh, character who has perfectly, and surely this is not my original thought, uh, fed into the anxiety and anger of the American people. And right now, and it's as per what Scott said, the vast majority of people's minds are locked up and they yeah. don't want to hear anything. They don't care what the facts are. As we discussed before, a lot of people don't believe in science anymore because science argues against what some of their positions are on the issues. So I, I'm sort of where Scott is. I don't see what the breakout of this is, even though we'll keep trying to get there. Scott, thank you for your thoughts. Well, we appreciate it. Maybe it's hopeful that, you know, Ted Cruz, for example, is not the person to pick up the the Trump mantle, do you think, Jim? How do you know it's not uh, Ted Cruz? Because do I mean? just don't think he's, I, as you just pointed out, I think Trump is a, is a unique character in many ways. And I don't think there's a Republican behind him that could do what he's done. I don't yeah, think. Trump's going to live to 130, though, let me tell you. I mean, <laughs> he is. He's got those I mean, great genes, he is, he is. as he said himself. Ed and Gardner, you're next. Hi. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. So I told um, the person that uh, screens the calls, yeah. you know, people need to remember that it was Joe Biden that confirmed and certified um, Donald Trump's presidency. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a Democrat from Massachusetts, and I didn't like that. Okay. But and because he was vice president, we should be clear, because he was like, yeah. he presided over the Senate count. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So I didn't like that. Okay. However, that's the rules. Okay. Yeah. And he won. Period. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not concerned about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, to me, as a friend of mine described him, is like, is like Yeltsin. Okay. He's a sick old man. What I'm concerned about are people like Tom Cotton waiting in the wings, okay, that's going to grab power, that are slick, that have a good media, you know, uh, people working for them, that can um, hide their message uh, and, and, and twist it to make it, you know, sound democratic, but it's not. Okay, so what's it, by the way, Tom Cotton is the guy who led the charge against Rachel Rollins, for whatever it's worth, right. by the way, in the Senate. So uh, what's the end of the sentence, Ed? We only have a minute. What's the end of the sentence? I mean, so where do you go with that? Where do I go? Yeah. I go with the nominee from the Democratic Party, and that's where I stand. And right now, the Democrats, they, uh, as, as people complain about them that they don't do enough, they're doing what they can with the democracy we have now. And people, I think, need to support them. And whether you, you don't agree with them, you, know, you can't agree with uh, one candidate on everything. Yep, yep. You know, but you, you can at least agree that if elections are certified, that, that all the rules are followed, that you respect them. Well, we would and hope that's that, what the Democrats are trying to do. Ed, thank you for the call. We apologize. That is uh, that is true. And by the way, if unless I'm wrong, didn't Al Gore preside over the Senate confirmation of the election of the guy you ran against, George W. Do I have that's the, a great yeah, point? I'm quite he sure. was certainly I mean, the vice president. Then, that's what right? the constitutional requirement is. Yeah. So well, we're he, done. For he had today. a much closer race, and he. Um, oh, yes, he had a fairly close race. Moved aside. He had a fairly close race. Fairly close race. Yes. Thanks for listening to another edition of Boston Public. You know Radio. what I said at the end of yesterday? What'd nothing downbeat tomorrow. <laughs> well, tomorrow nothing downbeat. Okay, that's right. We're sick of being downbeat. But tomorrow we're going to be joined by our Friday All-Stars, and I think they'll cheer us up. Kelly Crossley will be with us. Andy Anatka will be with us. Sue O'Connell will be with us. And Boston owns Tracy Chang, owner of the fabulous restaurant Pagu, one of your favorite places. Pagu, right? Pagu one of great. your favorite places. One of the first Jim. restaurants in greater Boston to mandate vaccination, by the way, I should say. That's right. We want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber, our engineer, John the Claw Parker, and the additional production support provided by... Preeti TK. Jim, what's on TV? I'm actually not there tonight, but I'm pretty sure Sue O'Connell is sitting in. She's got a great lineup. Remember Robert Pape from the University of Chicago, who studied extremism forever? He's on with the head of the ADL. Uh, uh, that should be interesting. And then there's another segment talking about COVID messaging and how it needs to change for us to have a chance to uh, win in this uh, battle with this uh, a virus. So that's all tonight on uh, Greater Boston. I'll be watching, by the way. Okay. But I won't uh, be hosting. Okay, Jim, we'll all miss you. So tomorrow, raise your right hand. We're both swearing right now. Nothing horribly depressing tomorrow. Is that a deal? We'll do our best. Yeah. We will do our best. At least until 11 o'clock, and then it'll all start <laughs> change. Uh, I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you can tune in tomorrow, and hopefully we'll be more cheerful. We will. Tomorrow. Bye. Bye.